I look back, you know, growing up, I was surrounded by, you know, dodgy uncles and stuff. So to me, it was normal to, to be around these characters, you know. They, I stole all the traits off of oh, every time I stepped on a plot undercover, I was I was I was one of my relatives. But I wasn't pretending I'd been around it all my life. I did breathing exercises to slip into the role of a criminal. You know what I mean? I, uh, I found it very natural. Sometimes I found pretending to be a policeman harder. <laughs> <laughs> to do undercover work at level one, you have to have a certain temperament and a certain capability to do that work. And it's akin to some of the more dangerous criminals you'll meet. The skill set and the personality traits they have are very, very closely aligned. Very closely aligned. This is the difference between a level two undercover operator and a level one. I'm there 24-7, I live on now. And they pulled me in and said, look, we've been thinking, you, you know, we think you're good at this. We think you could do my side. Do, do you want it? He compromised down there. I sat back and went, I'm a compromised in my side. Growing up across the city, you know, I went to school in Manchester. Uh, at the time, I lived about nine miles away from my side. Uh, so, of course I'm compromised. But I just went, yeah, I'll do it. So I did the job and, you know, I, I went on to spend the best part of 18 months, two years infiltrating Moss Side. In Moss Side is a funny place, you know, at times it can almost feel electric, Moss Side. It has a real tension, uh, palpable tension about it, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough, tough place. So I put a lot of effort into my legend. So my criminal persona there was Mikey O'Brien. Michael O'Brien was a, a, a Mancunian, born Northern Ireland, um, so that gave me interesting links to Ireland and Northern Ireland as GMP had the very old Manchester gangster, you know, and um, I was it. A crew I got into were really dangerous lads, uh, you know, these lads didn't carry, they didn't carry guns for sure, you know, they, they used them, you know what I mean? One, one time I was in, 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 in the, he asked me to come and meet him, the, the guy I was into, Anton. He starts to direct me in the car. I have no idea where I'm going. And um, he starts to direct me towards Cheshire, but towards the sort of lanes in Cheshire. You know, I'm thinking he's going to blow my head off. This is a fantastic place to, to put one in the back of my head and leave me. New management come in and, and they couldn't stand me, to be truthful. I think I, they, they thought I was a bit of a loose cannon. But I look back now, and you know, I ended up, I ended up a detective inspector in the police, managing covert operations. And there's no way on God's green earth I would have sent me down to do that job. There's no way on earth I would have, it would have passed my risk assessment. It was ridiculous I was there. All right, we have got Shay on the off of deep cover. I'm more than halfway through the audio book presently, brilliantly narrated. Now... I was at a family function yesterday, and there was an undercover cop, ex-cop uh, there, sorry, not an undercover cop, ex-cop there. I'd met him for the first time, and he said he's been watching the podcast, he's seen the ex-cops we've had on, and we'd never get a real level one undercover cop on, because the work they do is too dangerous, infiltrating the top of the gang structure, not just going out doing the street deals and the level of danger and uh, privacy, etc. required is such that we would never get a level one on former undercover cop on. 
We've got one on. Because of the danger involved, he's had to be disguised. But his book is out, deep cover, phenomenal read, highly reviewed. Like I said earlier, audio book, brilliantly narrated. And I'm just going to read you what it says on the back of it so you can get an idea of what you're in store for. Shay Doyle is a former soldier and police officer who was one of the UK's chosen few level one undercover operatives. Posing as a professional criminal, he came face to face with some of Britain's most dangerous gangsters, often risking his own life. He was a decorated detective leading covert operations and tackling high-profile murder cases, including Dale Cregan, a case he was involved in that. Shay's central role in some of the most daring police operations of modern times was unparalleled, but leading a double life, constantly on edge, eventually took its toll. Shay is now a mental health advocate working alongside professionals and organisations to tackle the stigma attached to mental health in high-risk and high-pressure roles. He's also a passionate activist against gun, gang and knife crime. And as you know, on these podcasts, we like to have life lessons for young people and tie them into young people not getting gangsteritis and clicking up with these gangs and getting involved in drugs and crime. Also co-hosting today is Gary Rogers. He was the most viral out of the batch we did in Liverpool last time. If you haven't seen it, it is the video about how the Freemasons had a conspiracy against him in the Greater Manchester Police and ran him out of the Greater Manchester Police. And his his book's out, and all the links will be down there in the description box below the video for, for both um, Shay and Gary if you want to support the work. Follow them on socials and get the books. So, huge thank you for coming on, Shay. Hi, hi, Sean. Thanks for having me. Could you just explain then, because I've only recently heard this terminology, level one undercover cop. What does that mean exactly? Yeah, okay. So in UK, in UK policing, the UK policing framework, there's two levels of undercover policing. Okay, level one, level two. Level two will typically under, undertake uh, roles where they go out and, uh, and purport to be uh, heroin users or crack users. And they'll go out and buy small user amounts, deals of uh, heroin and crack. Uh, and at the end of the day, they'll pop that into an evidence bag uh, and the police will, they, they, you know, they may last a month, they may last six months uh, in a certain area. And the, the police, it allows the police to gather information against the street level drug dealers uh, and uh, link it back to an operation to look at upstream drug dealers. Uh, and then at the end of it, they'll take the evidence and everybody will get arrested. They'll put a load of doors in and loads of street level, street level dealers will get arrested. Fantastic tactic at, at building up intelligence on the street. Um, you know, but it's uh, it's uh, very much, um, uh, you, you know, you, you can go home at night, take the clothes off, you know, have a shower and live some kind of norm- normality, albeit it is a stressful job. Level one undercover policing is where you uh, typically, at well, my role particularly, I, I typically portrayed an organised criminal. Um, and I would live and breathe that role. Sometimes, uh, Mossad, for example, where I worked, we'll talk about later, uh, you know, I was there for nearly two years, uh, and other operations, you know, year plus, uh, in, in many, on many, on many occasions. That was my forte, doing it for a long time. Uh, so day in, day out, being somebody else, being a career criminal, purporting to be a career criminal, and having to be convincing to convince real-life criminals that I was also a real-life criminal. Could you just quickly then say some of the biggest 
organizations or characters that you infiltrate? I know Dale Krieg and IRA, what, what, what others? Well, the, no, the IRA, uh, I was in the military first before I joined the police, so my involvement with the IRA was very much in, uh, in the military, in a military sense. Uh, when I worked undercover, uh, I worked, um, I did numerous jobs undercover. Um, firstly, first, actually my first operation was against the Bent police officer. Um, uh, can't say where, can, you know, we can talk about it a little bit. But uh, it was actually a Bent police officer who was involved in uh, taxing drug dealers on his days off, as you do. And um, <laughs> yeah, you, mean you couldn't wake it up, could you? Uh, it's like something from like Line of Duty. Uh, and, and ultimately, I, I was able to infiltrate him and uh, he, he subsequently went to prison. So that was my first introduction into undercover police, and I got to get the Bent police officer. So, you know, we do, you know, if, if the information is there, we'll tackle anybody, you know. Um, Secondly, the major operation I discussed in the book was Mossad, which obviously we, know, we all know about Mossad's historic issues with guns and gangs, some very, very serious criminality going on, probably some of the worst gun violence we've seen in the UK in terms of gang violence, young teenage kids being murdered. Um, you know, at, at, at times it's been a really, really serious, you know, bad, bad place. But I mean, I must stress Mossad for me, you know, it's got it's a tale of two halves some wonderful people down there doing fantastically community spirited who do some amazing work and, and by and large the community is a fantastic place uh, but there is a hardcore nucleus of some very very serious gang members who, who have, have access to firearms and, and kill people i'm going to get to all that in a minute then now for security reasons we can't go over your life prior to the military and the police so we're just going to go straight to your work in the military before we go to the police then. So what, what was it that got you into the military and what were you assigned to do? Well, you know, just sort of, I can talk about bits about growing up and stuff. Um, it's not too much of an issue. Uh, I grew up in Manchester uh, and, you know, I grew up in a rougher end of Manchester. You know, certainly wasn't fed with a silver spoon growing up and uh, certainly learnt traits from people around me and certain family members that stood me in good stead later in life when I did work undercover. Um, well, at the age of 16, you know, my, my family life was a little bit chaotic and, and, you know, there's certain issues going on, which I just, you know, touched on in the book um, that made me want to get away, really. And the military seemed a really good escape for me. I was quite a good boxer growing up and things like that. I was very sporty and very fit, so it seemed a natural fit for me. I wasn't particularly academic at school, so uh, the military certainly seemed like a, a good fit for me. And it, when I went down to the careers office in Manchester, as you do, uh, you know, there was, there was only one way I was going to go, and that was to a combat unit. So I was sent to an infantry, a combat infantry unit. Uh, and I spent around eight years there. Eight years? Yeah, about eight years in the military before I joined the police, yeah. I got around, you know, uh, served in um, Africa, and served in the Middle East, and served in Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland being my first operational posting, uh, where I sent to South Armagh, uh, which was known as bandit country at the time. Um, and this was sort of mid-90s. Um, so... Yeah, you know, the, 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 the troubles were essentially coming to the back end of it, but there was still a lot of clandestine stuff being done out there by the IRA and the terrorist groups out there, still extremely dangerous. And there was a soldier called Stephen Restrick, um, God rest his soul, he was shot by a sniper in South Ara, South, South Armour weeks before I arrived there uh, in a place called Besbrook, um, which is a real hotbed. Um, and I would patrol out of there and you'd run out and you'd see signs road signs at the side of the road, um, triangles, painted sniper at work and stuff like this. So, you know, as a young 18-year-old kid, it's a bit of an eye-opener and a bit of a bottle tester, but, you know, you've been, you, your training kicks in and you, you're soon sort of acclimatised to that sort of threat level. And, you know, I'd 
go around Northern Ireland and we patrol around the, the, the hills and beautiful, beautiful place, South Amar, you know, up, up, underneath is a real underlying danger. Um, you know, the IRA were an incredibly clever terror group. You know, they, they would have spent many, many years dug in, knew how to deal with the security forces and were very, very good at it. You know, they were, in fact, you know, they, were, they, they even went out to Libya and places like that and trained other terror groups. That's how good they were. So you were dealing with a very, very, you know, uh, very clever folk. So you had to be equally tricky, you know, and, uh, you know, I progressed through the military and, you know, led, 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 led a small team out there and uh, would do what we call observation posts, watching terrorist targets and stuff like that. So, so yeah. in, in your book, what I found interesting was you said when you were on patrol, a sniper could have just wiped you out any second, but you never felt more alive. Yeah, I think um, that's what I joined the military to do. You know, I didn't, I didn't join to sort of do the marching with the brass bands and stuff. You know, I joined to be in, be in the middle of it, and that's, that's, that was my character. You know, I wanted to be in the middle of the, the high-risk, high-threat situations, and that's when I would feel alive, and that's when I would almost be at my best, when my brain would fire up and... Uh, you know, that's when I would, uh, my thinking seems to be really sharp and, and get that clarity. How alert are you at the, in those moments? Absolutely. You know, uh, you've got to be switched on because the threat can come from anywhere. Like I said, you know, the IRA was such a good enemy that, you know, you, if you weren't switched on, you, you, you shouldn't have been there, you know. Um, but certainly I found that it, the threat level, and something I found through my police career, the higher the threat level, the more switched on I became. And, and did you get in a situation in the military that was hurry? Yeah, we had situations in South Armagh. We had, uh, you know, uh, shots fired at us in South Armagh. Uh, it, it turned out it was a, it was a farmer. But, uh, <laughs> he, but uh, he, he, well, he claimed to be a farmer, you know, that with, with his shotguns and stuff. So it wasn't sort of a serious sort of, serious sort of contact. But, um, yeah, by that point, the, the IRA, you know, were, were, were carrying out bombings all over, you know, and... Um, the Omar bombing w was not long after that and stuff. So, but yeah, I mean, um, one situation I got into in Northern Ireland, I did the Portadown riots, the Orange Lodge, do a lot of marching up in Garvaki Road and marching season. And um, it's heavily policed by, by the police and security forces there. And I did that two years on the trot. And I remember being stood in Garvaki Road Cemetery, um, stopping uh, Orange Order, Order members trying to get into this Catholic cemetery, uh, you know, being spat at abused us, you know, and I'm thinking, I'm just an English kid, I'm a simple English kid from Manchester, you know what I mean? I've got no real political views about this, I'm just here doing some soul kind of thing. Yeah, an armor light fire came over, you know, and next thing, the helicopter up, and, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it switches you on, and, uh, but, listen, all good learning for me, you know, and uh, I always credit the military with uh, instilling in me that ability to, uh, you know, react. I knew I would react in a dangerous situation, and certainly when I worked undercover, all the skills I'd learned in the military really kicked into me all those traits I learned. So why the transition to the police? Uh, do you know what, I joined, I joined the military at 16 and um, kind of thought, I think you're missing something. You know, I got to the age of 20, late 20s, uh, sorry, late 23, um, heading towards 24. And I met a girl, you know, and they liked my personal life had moved on. And, you know, at 16, you're, you're a kid, aren't you? You know, you think you're missing something on Civvy Street. Um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd done a number of operational tours by this point and... Uh, the novelty of being in the military was kind of wearing off for me. And then my dad killed himself. My dad get, get, get hung himself, uh, committed suicide. And so it, it, the, the hankering to be home and look after me mum and, and family members became stronger than being in the military with the lads and, and doing what I was doing. So it was a bit of a, a, a decision that I needed to be around and almost be the breadwinner for, for my family, for my mum, and be, that, that, be the man around the house, if you like, you know, be the man, man of the family and step up. 
Uh, yeah, my dad unfortunately, 47, uh, hung himself. So it, it, it kind of polarises your decisions in life, what you need to do. Can I just ask you, had that not happened to your dad, would he have remained in the military or would he have still come out? Yeah, I think I'd have gone back, Gary. Um, I loved the military. Uh, I think the military was my calling in life, to be truthful, much more than the police ever was, right, if, yeah. if I'm honest. Um, even though I ended up doing more in the police than I did in the military. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I loved the military. Um, and I think if I'd, my dad had been around, I probably would have stayed in the military. And, and your life got, would have been totally different after that. Possibly, yeah. Gone on to have a full career in the military, you know. Um, who knows what I, what I could have got involved in. Mm. Entering the police then, what was your objective? Uh, well, I mean, it, it was funny one really, Sean, because where I came from in Manchester, you didn't join the police. It was not, not the done thing, you know. And I had a real sort of moral quandary about it, you know. Sure, you know, I had many pals on who had taken a wrong path, you know, and some of them in quite serious ways, you know. Some of them got into to serious drug dealing and, and armed robbery and stuff like that, you know. Even family members of mine. And so, for me to, to join the police was a real big putting my head above the parapet massively. You know, I knew that people from my family, people who I'd grown up with, would take a huge leap back from me. I knew it would impact on my personal friendships and personal relationships massively. Um, you know, it just wasn't the done thing where I was from in Manchester. But um, eventually, it was, a, it was a friend of mine who was in the military with, he, he joined Greater Manchester Police, and he, and he rang me up and says, you know, he knew my dad had killed himself. He said, look, you know, I was working, and I'd just got out of the military, and I went back working on a building site as a hot carrier. And he said, listen, come on, you, know, you can do more than this, you. You're a bright lad, you know, you've got a lot about you, you know, don't, don't let all that experience we've had in the military go to waste, put it to use, you know. Um... And he said, it's all right, I'm enjoying it, give it a go. So I filled out the forms. And to be honest with you, Sean, you know, I'd been a bit of a rogue in my youth, you know what I mean? Fighting and, and, and uh, I'd been banned from driving and uh, I'd been nicked a couple of times myself for scrapping in pubs and luckily never got charged up, you know. And, and, uh, so I'd got, I wasn't some sort of um, silver spoon uh, goody two-shoes by any touch. I could quite easily have been on the other side of the other side of the fence, you know, quite easily. And so I thought, do you know what? I scratched me head and thought, fuck it, I'll have a go. You know, even though I knew it, it caused me issues personally. So I never really expected to get in from truthful. I, all the way through my police service, I expected someone to tap me on the shoulder and say, there's been a mistake, so you should be here, you know. Um, all the way, right up to the end of it, uh, and certainly when I was going through the selection. So I started the selection procedures with not much great great hope. And um, uh, and again, I joined, you know, I, I didn't have a GCC to my name. I, I joined the military at 16. I had no, no qualifications whatsoever, other than ones I had in the military. And uh, which I know you so seriously, by the way, you know. Um, but um, and I started to go through this process and started to sort of lean into it a bit. I thought, yes, this is, this is okay. And at the end, I, I, I detail it in the book. The chief inspector said to me, "How do you think you've done?" I said, "Well, I think I've given a good account of myself, you know, and um, uh, done okay. You've done more than okay. You've scored in the top three percent of the country uh, for the recruitment process, and we'd, we'd, we'd like to strongly consider coming on the high potential development scheme." which is a scheme to fast-track people through, you know, into leadership roles and rank, which I turned down. <laughs> <laughs> because in my, in my mind, it was, a, it was a sort of a leg up for the privileged, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be, I wanted to go into the, do the risky stuff, and that, that was, that's where I saw my forty. So I turned it down. So, so you went through the selection process. What was that like compared to getting into the military? It was very different. You know, the military, what I was in, you know, as an infantry soldier, it's very, very physical, isn't it? You know, so... Um, I was physically a very robust person. The police was much more about uh, recruit selection, uh, just sort of basic tests and sort of. When I did it, you know, uh, lots of a little bit of role playing. And I was going to say that. some of it must have been a bit nonsensical to you, really. Well, not nonsensical. Just um, 
just kind of uh, very low level compared to what I've been dealing with. You know, I've been in Northern Ireland dealing with real life situations. I've been on arrest operations with, you know, joint operations with the IEC. I'd led patrols in Northern Ireland and, you know, in the Middle East and stuff. So, you know, to me, really, I wasn't some naive kid coming into the police, even though I was only young. Was there a respect for your history, though, by those in the police? I don't think so. I don't think so, if I'm honest. No. Um, certainly not at recruit level. Um, you're just seen as another sprog, as, as, as yeah, you know, yeah. Gary. That's yeah, the, yeah. Sort of what you call the sprog, isn't it? But what, what you can't get away from, I don't think, is that, that eight years you spent in the military for your uh, what happened to you later was fantastic, really, to, to have that, wasn't it? Under oh, your yeah. Belt. I was tried and tested under pressure, you see. Yeah. You know, that, that's what it was. I think a lot of cops learn that in the job. Very, yeah. you know, It's a sleep learning curve, the police, as you know. Yeah. You, know you, you start to deal with very, some very dangerous testing situations. I'd already been there. Yeah. In, in, in probably in so some situations that were possibly more dangerous. You were 20 steps ahead of everybody else already, really, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, my thought processes were... were I, could, I was able to compute and process stressful situations and mm. risk and danger and... You know, I'd already been adept at doing that from being a 16-year-old kid, you know, yeah. in the infantry. So, so I took that, that skill set into the police with me. Yeah. What training did you have to do? For the police? Um, I, I mean, Gary used to be an instructor there, didn't you? I mm. went to Bruges where Gary was an instructor. And it, at first, at first, Sean, it, it felt very much like I was joining the military. Bruges was in Warrington. It was very much like a sort of military camp, you know, barbed wire fences. And I almost felt... Um, at home for the first. It was a bit like excited about joining the military again, joining that organisation. I suppose maybe I was institutionally sort of uh, <laughs> institutionalised a bit, maybe. Um, but I'm going to talk about it in the book. And it, I, I remember reflecting when I was writing the book about standing up in the mirror the first morning and put my police uniform on. And this was the moment I was supposed to sort of burst with pride. I remember looking at myself in the mirror and thinking, what the fuck am I wearing? What the fuck am I doing here? You know, it just felt alien to me. You know, none of my pals were, you know, you know, it just was alien to us. One of us would join the police. Uh, so, yeah, I went through the training. You learn lessons on the law, role plays on arresting people and how to apply legislation. And, um, you know, uh, there's a little bit of fitness, but it wasn't particularly challenging in comparison to the military stuff for, for me. Um, and then, you know, it's just all very much um, legislation based. And I started to lean into it again. I started to enjoy it. I met some other like-minded souls. I, I didn't gel particularly with a lot of the other sort of recruits because a lot of them came from higher education. And I just wasn't, you know, I was still a Manchester Council Estate kid, you know, straight from the army. I wasn't, it just wasn't um, who I was and, and I found it hard to gel with them. But eventually along the way, I found some very similar like-minded souls and lads who were having a go at it who weren't, there, weren't really there for my lifetime calling to be police officers. Uh, just sort of give it a bash, why not? Uh, and so once I found them, I started to, started to lean into it, I started to enjoy it. You know, started to enjoy it. I found that I was found that I was reasonably reasonably bright. You know, I was able to uh, intake information and apply it quite easily, and um, just have kind of a natural ability for it, I guess. At that time, then, when you were there, did you have a particular thing in your sights where you wanted to get to in the police? Absolutely not. No. no. So, like I say, I was still expecting someone to tap me on the shoulder and say, "You shouldn't be here, kid." Yeah. You know, if I'm honest. Um, uh, um, <laughs> I mean, you know, some of my family members. Proper rogues, you know what I mean? Mm. And quite well known rogues as well, some of them, you know. And mm. I was always expecting it to come. Yeah. Um, so, no, I, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I suppose the natural one when I first joined was firearms, the firearms units, because that was my background in, in, in the military. You know, I knew guns, I knew tactics. Mm. Uh, and that was um, certainly undercover where I went. It was something I'd only ever seen on Murphy's Law on the telly, if you remember it, you know. Mm. Uh, it wasn't something that was even in my head. And it's a very secret world that until you're part of it, you, you yeah. don't know about it. You know, yeah. most cops even now who are out there don't know about undercover, the level one undercover work. It's, it's the most secretive 
element area of the of the place. And needs to be. And needs to be, quite rightly. Mm. So yeah, I had no I had no real um, real aspirations of what I was going to do, and I and you know passed out of training and was sent to Aston under line uh, in sort of a backwater tame side in Greater Manchester. Before we go there, how long was the training and what did it involve? I think the training was about three months. Um, and like I say, it was just role plays and legislation, learning law, how to apply the law. Uh, and then you get lots of different inputs from different speakers about domestic violence or, or you know, um, dealing with conf conflict management and stuff like that, you know. Did uh, they show you videos of situations, like real life situations, yeah, what so, not to do? Well, yeah, like I, mean, I mean, one video I remember seeing was, <clears throat> I can't remember the name of it now, but it's, it's when people become so agitated, they move into a state of, they're almost like, they can't feel pain. It, 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 you know, people, it, I can't remember the name of it now. You may, you may remember the name, Hype or something they call it. And it's, uh, it was a guy who's actually on a roof and he's, he's, uh, he, he's you know, he's, he's lost the plot, this guy. You know, he's absolutely lost the plot. And um, he, he's now moved from being angry into this state of hyper, hyper, whatever they call it. And he literally jumps off the apex of a house, lands on the floor, jumps up, starts to fight with the police. Now they get him under control. He has to he's got two broken legs. But he's, he's, he's his mind... Is, such uh, a state. His, his mind was in such a state that it was overriding the physical pain his body was, was dealing with. And this this happens a lot. You know, mm. this this stuff happens a lot. And this is what cops have to deal with every day of the week. You are dealing with people who get into that state. You don't know what personal issues they're going with. You don't know what drugs are involved. You know, and, and they move into a state of where they almost can't be hurt. And, it, and it's really dangerous territory, you know. Mm. And cops are dealing with that every day. Yeah, watch that madness on the motorway documentary where those women get run over by the, the trucks and they look like they're going to be dead because these trucks have hit them. And then the cops come and they just jump up and start fighting with the cops. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think yeah. it's just a natural instinct of survival that we're all inbuilt in all humans and we can all have the capability to go there. Mm. You know, I think it's something we all have. What about the physical training side of it then? What did that entail? Yeah, I mean, like I say, they very much scale back the physical training from Gary's day. Um, because I remember, you, you know, when you did it, it'd been like the ex-Marine, the ex-soldier shouting at yeah. you. That had been scaled back very much. So there was a bit of a swimming test. There was a little bit of, little bit of running, but very, most of it was sort of, uh, you know, self-responsibility. Which I was always into fitness and running anyway. So I'd go and do me run, I'd go and do me training, my weight training and stuff. And I was very much into boxing and tie boxing. So, so that was, I, I kept myself fit. I took responsibility for that myself. The Can we just interject there with, with how, how namby-pamby-ish it became in some ways? Like, yeah. you know, you had to do a lot of drill, didn't you, marching? And when you come to a standstill, when you're marching, you bring your foot up and bang it down. They, they stop that at Bruges because it might yeah. hurt the feet. Yeah. So they weren't allowed to <laughs> stamp the feet down anymore. So it became ridiculous, some of the things yeah. they were introducing. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 Gary makes a good point because, you know, I come from being a, a combat soldier into, yeah. into this sort of woke, wokery, and I just found it a bit of a joke, if I'm truthful. You know, for me uh, and what I've done, it, mm. it was all a bit of a joke and a bit mm. laughable, and that's how I treated it, really. I kind of just, uh, kind of, kind of just laughed my way through it. I think way. the biggest pressure, though, would be every week you, you, you were doing uh, instruction on law, so you would have to then pass a test, wouldn't you? to yeah. get through to the following week. So yeah. that, that was perhaps the main bit of pressure on you. Absolutely. And I think, I think you're right there, Gary, because um, I wasn't somebody that had sat down and done tests. I didn't even turn up for me. I was going to say. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that was uh, the first pressure I'd had in terms of having to sit there and do a test. You know, ask me to do a run or do something mm. combat-wise yeah. or, you know, yeah. infantry skills. No problem for me. But, yeah. you know, it's a test bit, that put you outside uh, your, uh, your comfort zone. Absolutely. A little bit, pen and paper, a little bit of a sweat on. But, you know, I, I found, uh, certainly what the police found with me was, I had, I had uh, 
quite good memory retention and recall, um, which was obviously a, you know a natural mm. gift that I, that I had. It came into use massively when I worked on the cover for me. Um, so yeah, sitting in a test gave me got me a sweat on every now and then. Yeah, but uh, you know I, again I sort of got by no problem. Do you have to do firearms training at that point, or is that a specialist thing? No, that's very much a specialist thing. You've got to you've got to have been in the cops a couple of years at least before you can apply to to move into a specialism uh, like firearms. So yeah, there's no there's no firearms training at that point. There's 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 baton and cuffs and, and CS gas training and you know a little bit of ninja skills and stuff, which aren't really very ninja. -y. If truth be told, you know, get back, get back, you know. The, mm. the, the I think they, they tightened up on that, though, because when I was on the regional crime squad, I became a firearms officer. But then you would be expected to uh, get turned out with a gun and you not pick one up for months. And I think that's where the danger is because you've got to be handling them all the time, not <clears throat> every six months when there's a call out for something. Because yeah. I think that's when there's a risk of you pulling that trigger. Because you're hyper yourself. Well, that, 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 that's very much changed now. I don't think that's the case anymore. No, no, because, I know they changed um, after. You know, they used to have uh, old DCs and DS <laughs> nine mils in the drawer that they'd, yeah. they'd dust off and get out and shove down the pants, yeah. you know. But uh, <laughs> doesn't really happen anymore. It doesn't really happen anymore. So you were dispatched to Manchester after the training. Yeah. What was your position there? Police constable, uniform police constable, uh, like I say, based at same side, which... People think it's very much a, a forgotten backwater of Great Manchester, but when I when I arrived there, it was the murder capital of Manchester. More murders in Tameside than any other borough in Great Manchester. Uh, and uh, you know, one of the first murder scenes that I ever sort of um, was involved with was a guy called um, Liamos, Le who was the, the brother of... Um, uh, uh, sorry, not Liamos. Stephen Amos, who was the brother of Liamos. Liamos was one of the... Um, serious sort of uh, leader of the Gooch gangs who ended up going away for 40 years and his brother was shot dead outside a bar in Ashton. It was one of the first sort of uh, murder scenes, that I was, first murders I was ever, ever sort of, you know, involved in. Can I explain to the viewers who the Gooch gang is? Yeah, the Gooch gang, so the Gooch gang, in my side there was two major gangs initially, uh, the Gooch gang and the Doddington gang. They took their names from road, the streets that they lived on, so it was Gooch Close and the Doddington Close. Uh, and over the years, they've evolved into numerous factions and splinter cells, but they still actually are the two main gangs within that South Manchester area. And um, Lee Amos was the very, very dangerous individual. He's away for 40 years now um, for multiple murders, and he was one of the leading lights in the Gooch Gang. Um, we'll come on, maybe touch on it later when I talk about Mossai, because they were pivotal in the reason why I got sent down there after their, after their conviction. Um, and his brother Stephen was a DJ, and he got he got shot dead outside a bar, and it was to get at Lee, unfortunately. You know, bloody hell! And he he famously had a tattoo tattooed on him Lee after um, his brother was killed. That said, "Can't stop, won't stop," and that was because he was so intent on revenge against anyone who those who'd, who'd harmed his brother. You know, which you know you can understand. So it's Gooch and Doddington. A day at war, and and how does the Salford lot fit into that? So, yeah, the Gooch and Donington have been at war over the years, sporadically. Some some periods being worse than others, and certainly, uh, um, they they helped with Manchester get the label Gunchester back in the day. Uh, like I say, it's very much evolved the gang scene in in Moss Side now. They would have been that they are the two main gangs. But you've got lots of, uh, because of lots of refugees from war-torn countries coming into the area of South Manchester and Moss Side, 
you've got Libyans and Somalians and other African nations that have all come from, you know, a lot of these kids have come from war-torn countries. The battle hardened, they're, you know, they're really violent, you know, really uber-violent. And um, they've now started their own splinter factions of these gangs. And that was pretty much one of the reasons why I was sent undercover down there, to get a grip and an understanding of what was going on. I think initially all the Gooch and the Doddingtons had their own particular areas, didn't they? They did, yeah. One side of uh, the Princess Parkway, one was one side yeah. of the, one, so They the respected Prince, it. Princess Parkway was sort of the, the, the road that runs down um, straight through Moss Side. It splits it in two, effectively. Gooch were one side, Doddington the other. And they would, they would, you know, they would, they would literally protect their territory with death, with, with murder and violence and guns. You know, if even if kids were seen riding through there on, on, on BMX bikes, it, it could result in a shooting. That's how, that's how serious this, this gang war was down there. GMP did a, an operation early nineties on the Gooch Close, uh, Operation China, which took a few of them out. Um, yeah, well, that was a that was a test purchasing operation, and yeah. the, the Mossad precinct back in the nineties was uh, was literally the front line for drug dealing. And, uh, you know, you'd have uh, Gooch gang members down there uh, protecting that territory. They'd have runners out, seeing if the police were coming down. And, uh, On the bikes. And they, they literally, you'd have heroin and crack dealers coming for, uh, heroin and crack users coming from all over the northwest to this open drugs market. You know, so the police had to do something about that. You cannot allow that to go on. Uh, and, you know, Mossai being the difficult place it was, they did a fantastic job, Operation China and Operation China, yeah. There was a, an empty council house in the middle of a block and uh, they put a camera in the roof. Lifted the lifted the roof tiles, uh, and had the camera focused down onto the what was called like the, the drug square there, where you used to go in and buy. Um, but that, that's the length they went to, you know, to, to catch them. Then they had uh, test purchases going in, didn't they, regularly yeah. to buy? Yeah. And, uh, it was a really, really successful operation. Sort of laid the groundwork for some of the, the undercover undercover work I would do down there. So you get sent to Manchester and you start on undercover work right away? No, no. So I did two years in uniform. I did two years in uniform like anybody else. And if I'm honest with you, I, 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 was, I was a pretty good cop, you know, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, I, a lot of street nows, you know, from growing up. And, uh, you know, I knew, how, I knew how criminals operated, you know what I mean? I knew them all the operandi. I knew I knew it. So I was good at catching villains, you know, it's, it's a simple fact. I was good at catching them, you know, and, um, and I had no problem with it. You know, certainly in uniform policing, you're dealing with much more, the lower end of criminality, if you like, you know, the more nuisance stuff uh, or burglary and stuff like that you know and I caught a few burglars which was always quite satisfying for me you know because you know I don't like people who break into people's homes you know it's, it's pretty scummy crime in my book and, and you know I've seen kids and old ladies shattered as a result of people breaking into their home so yeah I remember catching one one lad uh, one of my first arrests was um, uh, he was a, he was a heroin addict um, you know obviously you know desperate to score um, and I caught him uh, halfway and halfway out of an old lady's house so pulled him out by his legs and nicked him. So, uh, yeah. What was your biggest challenges during that first two years? So I talk about in the book, uh, one particular evening I'm, I'm on duty and um, uh, it, it, a, a, an issue comes in regarding a domestic issue in, in Ashton where uh, a, a lady had an issue with her partner uh, and their children at the home. And so she's rang her. I think he's, you know, there's been, been some violence you know, within the house. So she rings her brother. Now, her brother was six foot ten, dormant, 30 stone, Salford dormant. So he was, he was like old Craig King, actually. And he uh, decided that uh, he was going to come down and, you know, sort this issue out. So a colleague of mine, really good, good lad, um, he's in the house. He's an ex-firearms cop as well, actually. So he's been around the block and whatnot. And Craig King turns up with a machete and a sawn-off rifle. 
So I make to the scene and start to uh, just, just get, get myself at the sort of safe distance where I can give a, a running commentary of what's going on, uh, hid behind a wall, behind some cover. And he starts to sort of ping rounds off up and down the street uh, into the door. My colleague's in there with, with uh, another colleague of mine. They literally barricade the door, get upstairs, get the family down, you because know, in case any rounds start to come in. And this, this guy just completely, you know, he was... It, it transpired later. He was he was off his head on prescription drugs and, and drink, I think. Um, and um, you know, my pal's in the house. He's giving a commentary. You know, he's reloading the gun. There's another shot fired. I've oh, got an ETA for firearms response. I'm trying to give a running commentary, but stay at, maintain a safe distance so I don't get bloody shot. You know what I mean? And then uh, it, firearms turn up, challenge him, and um, he refuses to put the weapon down. You know, clear, clear threat to public safety, clear threat to human life, and unfortunately they had no cho- choice to but to shoot him. So they shot him three times, and, and um, you know, there's a quote in the book where he shouts, because he's so big, he just doesn't drop instantly, you know, he's, he's still still saying, come on, come on to the police, as he's being shot, you know, which sort of gives you some indication of how big he was, and, and the potential of the pres- prescription drug use. And um, yeah, he was the first person to be shot dead by Great Manchester Police. Wow. Didn't he say something like, is that all you've got? You've shot I think, me I think the words were, you've shot me three times. Come on, if you think you're fucking hard, kill me. That was it, yeah. Yeah, you know. But wow. What, what can you do in that situation? It's very, you've got a man who's actively firing a gun up and down the street. He's got a machete. You know, there's people in houses that these bullets, he's indiscriminately firing it. And he'd, he'd come to save his sister, was that it? I think he he'd come to sort out the fella, if I'm truthful. He, you know, he went, he, he went he, berserk. Went Thank berserk, goodness he didn't yeah, get hold of it, Yeah, eh? and obviously, yeah, the police, you know, the, my, the police were already in the, in the house. Uh, you know, my, my pal were in the, in the house, talk about him in the book, was, you know, calmness personified, really. You know, and that was his experience in firearms and stuff, you know, that he'd been there, done it, he wasn't. And, you know, very, very brave guy, brave guy actually. Brave, yeah. brave lad. I think that highlights again, though. You know what the public don't get to know about with what police officers are dealing with on a, you know, regular uh, the basis. risks, the risks, and more so these days as well with firearms. Absolutely, and you know, I also say, you know, a lot of you know, I'm not, I'm not firearms cops. Quite often, they're the last to turn up. You know, it's the cops out there mm. on the street who aren't armed. Yeah, who are going through the door, and unfortunately, you know, it came. The worst thing that could happen did happen. You know, I was involved in that operation later mm. on, later in my career um, when cops were shot dead. You know, but it's the cops who aren't armed who are doing the really dodgy, dangerous stuff. Mm. You know, quite often, firearms cops, yes, they responded to something, yeah. but they've got the means to, to fight, to shoot, to protect themselves. Yeah. You know, cops, cops who response cops really do not get enough credit for the dangers they face. Did you have any close calls in the first two years? Oh, yeah, I mean, numerous, um, numerous confrontations. You know, it's a, it's a job of conflict, the police, unfortunately. <laughs> You know, there was numerous times I had to use force on people, I remember, or, or you know, I was had people try to use force on me, you know. Um, I remember one situation where a, a, a lady had taken another girl hostage in a, in a, in a bathroom with a knife. Over what? Uh, just drinking drugs, you know, drinking and drug fuel, m- mentalness, really, you know, unfortunately, um, and mayhem. Uh, and she'd taken a, a, someone hostage in a, in, a, in a bathroom and I just happened to be there. And, you know, the, the protocol would say you, you sort of get, you know, stop and get hostage, but I'm thinking threat to life. So I remember kicking the, the bathroom door in and landing on top of them both through the bathroom and having to fight with this girl while she's trying to stab, stab us, you know, and eventually, you know, I, I mean, it sounds gratuitously awful, doesn't it? But I'm having to punch this woman in the face, you know what I mean? 
And you know, while she's trying to wield the knife against me and this girl, and you know, eventually I did, you know, I took control of her and had to use some quite extreme force, mm. justifiable force, but but she could have killed you. She could have killed me or the girl. You know, and, and I remember getting her in cuffs, and she still was going. She I mean, she she was one of these that I think had moved into this state of hyper violence, you know, mm. whatever you want to call it. And you know, she was still trying to spit and headbutt me in cuffs. And, and I mean, I'm not being funny. I'm not to top all the teeth out. You know, you know, she she you know, I'd, I'd given her. You know, I'd given her the good news. You know, and uh, she was still still going for it. She'd just gone past the you know the 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 point of no return. Really, it's, you see that quite often. With women, though, is that rare? Do you know something? I always found women more hard. To, when women went off, more hard to deal with than men, to be truthful. Um, because the, the, there is, and it looks awful, doesn't it, Sean? You know, if, if you're if you hit a woman, it looks awful, doesn't it? And, and I would, it would be my absolute last resort, you know. But unfortunately, in my career, there were times when women were that violent and had weapons that you had no choice but to use force. And it's an unfortunate. It's something I'm not proud of, but it's just an unfortunate reality of policing, you know. Um, I, I, you, you have to protect. Better I go home mm. safe to my family than, than I get a knife stuck in me by a woman just because it's a woman. You know, I'm sorry to say it, but it's a fact of fa- harsh fact of life. I'm afraid. Drugs intake though fuels that drugs, even more now. Drugs, it? absolutely. Um, so I always found I always found dealing with women who were violent more difficult because you, you do you do try and restrain yourself. You do naturally as a man. Uh, I, I, you know, I always would. Um, as I did with anybody really. I, I wasn't one of these cops that wanted to be involved in gratuitous violence against anybody. It certainly was not not my agenda at all, you know. But unfortunately, you will have to use force in the police. It is coming your way. If you haven't done already, it's coming. Yeah. You know. As a police officer, you're naturally getting sent to bad stuff. Well, you do. Yeah. You see the worst of society. Nice you, you see the worst of society. You know, you do. Dead bodies in the first couple of years? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Loads of dead bodies. Loads? Uh, well, lo- yeah, loads, you know, you, because you go into sudden deaths all the time. Yeah. The, probably the most, the, the worst one I went to, which um, was quite a sad one, really. Um, he was a guy with learning, learning difficulties who didn't really have anybody or any family. And, and the reason, he, he used to sit on his doorstep every morning with a cup of tea. This all came afterwards. And a, and a passing motorist who'd been passing for years just used to wave at him, wind his window down and say hello to him. And, but he'd not seen him for two weeks. And he knew the guy, you know, had, had learning difficulties and stuff like this. And he just rang the police and said, look, I'm, I'm a bit concerned. I don't even know his name, but I've just waved to him for years and I've not seen him for, for, for a couple of weeks. So I get, I get tasked to go around. And straight away, I can see hundreds of blue bottles in the window. So I know what I'm going into, you know. I know what I'm going into. Uh, so the door's not even, I don't even have to force the door, it's unlocked. So I walked into the door and the stench hits me, like hits me. Um, and, and I'm literally cut, wretching, you know, it's that bad. And I know, I know now there's a dead body. So I, I, I literally cover my face and, and move into the kitchen and the gas, gas is on, the heating's on, the gas is on. So the de- 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 decomposing of his body was horrific. And he'd literally melted onto the liner of the kitchen. And, cooked himself. Yeah, effectively. And um, his head had separated from his body. And there was maggots all crawling out of it. And we couldn't get a, any um, specialist undertaker to come and remove the body. It was that badly, badly, badly decomposed. So I, me and a colleague had to put uh, forensic suits on and bag him up, effectively. And, and I literally yeah. had his head on a shovel at one point. Bloody hell. So yeah, it's pretty horrific scene, you know, pretty horrific stuff. And 
Does that kind of thing you just internalise it at the time and it, it haunts you a bit later on? Or? Do you know what, Sean? You know, I think, again, the military stuff, and you, you, you become desensitised to it in a way. Later in life, it's hit me. All the stuff I've done, the, the cumulative effect of everything hit me. Um, but at the time, you know, I think you just think, well, it's, it's what we have to do. This is what we have to do, and this is what the police have to do. You've got to be of a certain character trait as well, haven't you, to, to, to get through that? You have. And, and you, know, um, you know, we've seen, we've seen a lot of stuff in, you know, the cops in the Met with this um, sending jokes around, which I completely find abhorrent, you know, about, about mm. murder victims. Mm-hmm. I find it abhorrent, you know, that, that, that there's a line of decency that should never be crossed with victims of crime, or anybody for that matter. But, you know, in the military and the police, there is a black humour that, that goes on. Mm. And, it, and it's a coping mechanism, yeah. you know, it's a coping mechanism. Yes, but there's true. a line of decency that should never be crossed. So other ex-cops we've interviewed, Dan, have said some of the most horrific cases involve crimes against kids. In those first two years, did you come across any crimes against kids? Um, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't directly involved in sort of child abuse cases because they go to specialist teams. But, I mean, um, I do remember one sort of night going to... Um, a family home. It was a, it was a mother who had two children, and um, she was really, really mentally unwell. This lady, like really unwell, and she rang the police saying that she she was being targeted for assassination. And um, I got there, and it was apparent to me she was she was incredibly unwell. Uh, you know, so I, there's a protocol, and, and and I looked at the house, and I called out a, a mental health worker to to make the assessment. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. Here's a quick word from our sponsor. <laughs> Know what that sound means? It's more sales being racked up on Shopify. What do you think of Shopify, Jen? I absolutely love Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to sell, grow and make money for your business. Have you used it to boost your business? 100%, yeah. (laughs) So Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell from anywhere in the world. From creating your online shop in your own look. To finding new customers to scaling your burning idea. You can do it all from one place. With no need for skills in design or coding. It's how every minute of every day, a new seller makes their first sale with Shopify and you can join them. So what is your favourite UK-based business that's found success with Shopify? It's got to be Gymshark. They have grown massively thanks to Shopify. Now it's your turn to start selling today with Shopify for free. And thanks to 24-7 support, Shopify is there to help you every step of the way. Sign up for a free 14-day trial at shopify.co.uk slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Go to shopify.co.uk slash Sean right now to grow your business today. So that's shopify.co.uk forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor. Uh, whether, you know, just because I'm, I'm not an expert in mental health. I knew, I knew she was. And, it, and, it, and, it, and it, she had two, two young kids, she had a son and a daughter, and the son was about two, and the daughter was about seven. And it became apparent to me that the seven-year-old was parenting the two-year-old. Was feeding him, was parenting him, mum was that ill, and she'd been ill. And she, she opened a scrapbook of um, uh, local violent incidents and shootings that happened, and she, she took, cut them all out of paper and put them in this scrapbook, and she had, the, the, they were all targeting her, Gang, big gangsters' names, they were all coming for her, and she believed it. And unfortunately, you know, we have to use powers under 136 Mental Health Act to section. And I, I sort of got a rapport with these two kiddies. 
and he broke my heart, Sean. I wanted to take them home, you know, really feed them and look after them. And he broke my heart having to hand them to social services, you know, and uh, things like that do, do stay with you. But that one always stayed with me massively. So then, all right, so two years then, did you request to go into undercover or you assigned? No, that? no, so I didn't actually go straight into undercover. So I, got, I, got, I suppose I got a reputation in the police of being able to deal with the more violent end of stuff and, and I was quite robust and, you know, um, I decided I'd, I'd had enough. I actually wasn't particularly enjoying policing. A lot of my friends have pulled away from me now and it caused me issues in my personal life. And I wasn't particularly enjoying uniform policing. So things had settled down with my family and my mum. So I thought, I'm going to go back in the army because that was what I felt my calling was, the military. And then, I, so I told my sergeant and my intentions that I was going to, I was going to resign and go back in the military. Um, and I got an email of uh, an old DCI who was a bit of a scary guy, really. Um, I, won't, I won't mention his name, but uh, he, he had a real reputation as someone you didn't cross kind of thing. And he, he sent me an email saying, my office, two o'clock before you start your shift on, on Monday. So, you know, what have I done now? Like, I'm in the shit again for something. And uh, so I went up, sort of bricking myself a little bit. Come in. He says, come in. He says, uh, you ex-army? He says, yeah. He says, uh, like locking people up, don't you? Well, that's the job, isn't it? So, and he went, uh, so they hear good things about you. So I hear, I hear you want to uh, go back in the army. And I went, yeah, look, it's not really worth it. You know, it's, I, I've had a go. I, I don't, albeit, I think I'm all right at it. I don't, I don't think it's for me. As a lifestyle choice. You know, it's a massive impact on your lifestyle, please. And he said, listen, there's a lot more to the police than, than this uniform stuff, you know. Do you want to come work on my organised crime unit? So, you know, I'd seen these lads walking around the neck in jeans and T-shirts and they go out and do a drug bust or a gun, get guns back and they'd get information off informants and stuff. And to me, it was like the professionals or the Sweeney, you know what I mean? So I thought, I'll have a bit of that. And he went, right, you start tomorrow morning. So I never even had an interview or anything. And it was pretty unprecedented, really. And I think he just, you know, a couple of people had sort of spotted something in me that I was a good, we call him a thief taker. I was a good thief taker. And so uh, I, got, I got almost gifted a spot on this organised crime unit, which, again, isn't undercover. It's covert, and it's what we call proactive policing, but it's not undercover. And so then I spent about uh, eight, nine months there before I actually... Well, nearly 12 months there before I actually started pro the process to, for selection into, into undercover. And I got involved in some really tasty stuff on there, sort of dealing with armed robbery teams and... Uh, uh, um, Good level drug dealers, uh, people who are involved in firearms, you know, and, and shipping firearms about and stuff like that. So we do surveillance and we do sort of cover work and, you know, we get, we're going and recruit grasses and informants and stuff like that. Um, and it, I had really, really good fun doing that. You know, it's, it's, it's a really, really interesting world you start to move into. It's very, much, very different from uniform policing. And I think it, sh it must have stood out, though, how, how good you were uh, in uniform as a police officer, because obviously... The thing to point out is you have to do two years in uniform before you can go anywhere else because that's called the probationary period, isn't it? Yeah. So you've got to get through that probationary period of two years before you can go anywhere else. So obviously Shay's two years is up. He then gets the opportunity to go somewhere else. And you're a thief taker, you said, as opposed to a uniform carrier, which you'll know what I'm saying. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, you know, my, my uh, quote of, quarters of arrest, I was, I was nicking more than anyone else. And I wasn't just going out for... I wasn't interested. I was never interested in... Parking fines and speeding tickets. It just weren't, it weren't a gig for me, that. You know, I went after proper proper people who were, who were doing horrible stuff, you know. So my nick, my, you know, you, if you're that kind of cop and you, you go out and nick burglars and you go out and nick, a, you know, people who, who are doing real bad shit, you know, if you go out and get them, you get a reputation. And that's what happened, effectively. And so 
luckily, you know, along the way, uh, some some good bosses spotted spotted my potential, and and I, and I went into the went into the covert world. Uh, my first sort of introduction to the covert world, doing this uh, proactive unit and organised crime unit. Does that require more training then? Yeah, so there's more training in that. You'll do surveillance courses and uh, optical evidence gathering courses and uh, uh, that kind of stuff, yeah, driving courses and things like that. So, yeah, I got involved in that and it was really, really interesting. Met some really good people. You know, really, it's like they see on the telly. To me, it was like the Sweeney a bit, you know, um, uh, you know, you're doing surveillance on real bad bad, bad groups of criminals, you know, who are out there doing real harm to the community. And I mean, this was where I first sort of met Dale Cregan's group. Um, oh, tell us about that. Yeah, so so Dale Cregan and his crew were, were very, very young, up-and-coming crime group uh, at the time. Um, and obviously they grew into something much bigger, but at the time they were, you know, kicking in doors for, for plasma tellies, as were all the rage at the time, and, you know, doing violent, violent robberies for you know, confronting homeowners with weapons, saying, give us your car keys and nicking their Audi or the BMW and stuff like that. Some really sort of callous criminality really and they came to our attention they were involved in low level, low level drug dealing as well and they came to our attention because of the levels of violence they were using um, gratuitously really uh, against people that was uncalled for and they were they were certainly influencing other young criminals in their area and they, they were you know in their area the main little young crew right you know and people would attach themselves to them out of fear and out of you know, what in that kudos that comes with being around those kind of people. So we set up a covert operation to look at them and started to take out a number of his crew. Um, certainly ones that later were convicted of murder, I was, I was heavily involved with. Um, and, you know, they had stolen cars plotted up all over. They'd be doing breaking into houses daily, uh, doing robberies for cars and selling them onto armed robbery groups or whatever. Uh, and they were really sort of very brazen and very callous. Some criminals you can actually get along with, you know, as a cop. You can actually have a... Um, they manage us as well as we manage them. You know, they're very, very clever and shrewd. And, and you know, you can actually even, even sort of most, you know, have a laugh with them. And that's not to say they're informants or grasses. They manage us like we manage them. You know, they're very... The clever ones do. They manage us. They manage the police, you know, like as we as we do them. The shrewder ones. Um, these didn't have that in them. They were just callous and violent. And... Um, so we set about them, set a cover operation on them. And to do that, I needed to know, you know, who the associates were, who the family were, where they lived, where they frequented, what gym they went to. So I, I, I gathered all this information, which later became useful to me when I, when I was involved in the manhunt for him. How many years later was that? Well, you're knocking on a good, a good decade, over a decade later. So I met him when, you know, I met, I met that crew when they were very, very young. The that crew, did that crew have a name? Or? No, they didn't, have, they didn't have a name. They were just sort of, uh, you know, Drawsden East Manchester lads, you know, from uh, Drawsden and Clayton and Openshaw. So, yeah, we had some good successes against them, you know, sporadically good successes against them. And uh, um, I remember one funny story, actually, one of them uh, chased him from a stolen car. And uh, it was in Openshaw, which is quite a rough area in Manchester. And he, started, he, he can't run no longer. He's, he's running out of puffs. So he decides he's going to have a fight with me. So we, we start having a bit of a fight in the street. And I had no body armor on because uh, we'd been doing covert surveillance. I just had the jeans and the t shirt. So it's like any normal member of the public. He knows my car. So I, I, I'm trying to nick him for burglary and I mean, just chased him from a stolen car. So he decides he's going to have a bash at me. So we start fighting. And uh, there's a load of lads outside the pub. It's a sunny day drinking. And uh, 
he start he start shouting to them, he's a cop, he's a cop. So they start making their way towards me and I go, he's a pedophile, he's a pedophile. <laughs> <laughs> which which he always remembered and fucking hated yeah. me for, to be honest. But you know, they, they took one step forward and one step back. It's like the old, like the old um and he was he wasn't a pedophile, but you know, straight. But um, you know, uh, and I won't name him. But um but yeah, you know, it was thinking on my feet. <laughs> Otherwise, four or five of them might kick the shit out of me. All right, can I just ask you, you know, you were saying there about that, that you were doing covert jobs then in that yeah. department, but in terms of you personally then, you weren't fully aware of what a level one undercover officer was going to be Absolutely not. No, absolutely not. Well, you class it as that. Even, you know, even though you're in the covert world now, undercover is still the dark side of the covert world. You know, nobody knows anything about it unless you've been involved in that world. You know, and even the test purchase level, level two, they don't understand and know about the level one world. It's very, very, very much kept in the dark and in the back. You don't talk about it. And if you do know anything about it, you don't talk about it. You know? Like a need to know basis. A very much a need to know basis. It's still very secret. And the reason the reason I came to uh, get to know about it was I've been in the the, the, the organised county for about nine months doing these jobs. And um, one of the lads, who uh, was an experienced cop in, in my unit, he, he, uh, he comes to me and says, have you seen the advert for, uh, they want level one UCs to go to an open day? Potential level one UCs to come to an open day. So I, um, I went, no, don't know anything about it. He said, have a look at it. And they just used to have an open day where 200 people might go down and they'd, they'd give you very brief, a very brief synopsis of what it was all about. And then they'd start the application process for people to get to the recruitment process to, to get into it. So he says to me, my pal, he's in, he's in the IEC now, actually, um, over in Northern Ireland. He, he transferred over to Northern Ireland. And he says to me, um, I went for it uh, a number of years back. He said, no, I, got, I got to the late stages, then, then, then failed it, failed the selection. He said, it's really, really tough selection. It's, it's you know, it's about nine months long. Um, it's not gifted to you by any stretch of imagination. Um, we'll, we'll come on to that if you want. But um, and he says to me, look, I failed it. I think you'd be good at it. I think you'd be good at it. You've got the look. You've got the, you've got the talk. You've got the chat. You're, you're quick on your feet. You think fast. You know, he went, you're basically out of fucking part. You know what I mean? You went, you, you're there, but for the grace of God, you would be, wouldn't you? You know and he went, I think, I think you should get down there and have, and have a go, and have a bash. So I did. I went along with not much hope. There's 200 other hopefuls in this hall. Uh, a couple of guys come on, give you a very, basically tell you, tell you something, but tell you nothing about it, really. Uh, and then you've just got to fill out an application form and you, you, they sort of paper sift you down and think, oh, you're a fucking idiot, you're a dreamer, you're not for you. And then they start going through a number of series of tests, and, you know, te- intelligence tests psychometric tests, role plays, stressful stress testing scenarios, uh, um, uh, psycho, uh, psych, psychological tests with psychiatrists to, to make sure you're robust enough, to make sure you've not you know, killed small animals as a kid and got something in your closet that might come back to bite them. You know, you're, you're, a, you're a serial killer in the police or something like that. You know, um, so that process goes on for about nine months and you know, it's really challenging, it's really testing. And that's just to get you to the final course. So, and this is happening nationally. At the time when I did it, only two forces in the country were allowed to run the course, Great Manchester Police and the Met in London. And uh, I was successful in getting onto the Met course, onto the, onto the, the, the Manchester course, sorry. Uh, and so from 200 GMP cops who stood in that room that day, there was just four of us made it to the course. And then there was four other officers from around the country who came to do the Manchester course. So there was just eight of us. So maybe 400 nationally had tried to get to that course and only eight of us managed to get there. 
Wow. So you're talking, so that's the attrition rate of, of, to become a level one UC. And I think, I think the statistics are something like less than 1% of all police officers will ever become a level one UC. So I think that gives you an idea of how, you know, this, this is not the place for Walter Mitty. It's not the place for people pretending to think you can just go turn up and pretend to be a criminal. It's not that easy. You know, it's much more in depth. It's much more challenging than that. And then I, then I did the final course and, um, you know, the, I remember the opening, I remember thinking, oh, I've done quite well here, you know, when you get into this course. And I remember the opening words from uh, the lead instructor, a good friend of mine now, who um, he said, listen, just because you're all here, don't think you're going to be level one UC. He said, I will fail every fucking one of you if you're not good enough. I'll fail every one of you. And so I went through that and that's, that's very much about sleep deprivation, uh, really challenging scenarios really putting you under stress and you know you really start to see who people are under sleep deprivation don't you people's true character comes out you know uh, and it's almost torturous isn't it you know with no sleep uh, and uh, yeah and by the by the end of that course you are you are operating at your on instinct you know you are operating instinct and they're, they're trying to see have you got the resilience have you got the physical and mental resilience to do this have you got the ability to think on your feet have you got the ability to manipulate everyone around you yet not let them know you're doing it, you know? And that's the level you're operating as level when you see, that's who you've got to be, you know, and you've got to be convincing in role. Yet you've also got to stick in the law. You've got to understand the law, you know, implicitly, because if you don't, you'll lose the case, you'll lose the job. Uh, and I, I passed the course, and uh, out of the eight on the course, there's three of us passed it. But again, it's, it's tainted because, it, just because you've passed the course doesn't mean you're the finished article. And you're going to get thrown into some high-level undercover operation. You're not, you know. And it's tainted with the, the the fact that you may never be called on. A lot of people pass the well, some people that pass the course are never even used. Um, I, I went back to my unit, the organised crime unit, uh, on the Monday after passing selection. Oh, slaps on the back of the lads, but sort of tainted with. I'm never going to get the call. That afternoon, I got the call, and I was. Um, I was posted to Amiga, Greater Manchester Police's uh, undercover unit. Was part of that course the watch test? Yes. Could you describe the watch test to the viewers, please? So this is this is one of the very this is the actual first uh, first role play you, you'll do before you even get on the course. And it's just a very low level, um, a low level test of you know your ability to communicate, I guess, and maintain role as a, as a criminal. And it's literally as simple as this. And they just say, uh, people are watching from behind two way glass. And there's two guys in the room and say, look, the, the police have uh, identified that a high-value stolen watch is being sold, is being sold um, through an advert on, in, the, in the paper. Obviously, we're going back a number of years when I, when I didn't know, so the paper was where you sold stuff. And um, you, you've simply just got to go, make, make contact with the sellers and go and try to uh, buy the watch. That's it. That's all you've got to do. So, you know, you make a phone call, you go, you go into the room where you're being observed through two-way glass and there's two guys there and these two guys would have been very, very experienced undercover cops, you know, really sort of, you know, battle-hardened and, and knew, knew the game. And uh, I'm the last to go in on my time. And everyone's in and out in 10 minutes. So I get in there and I'm in there 45 minutes trying to buy this watch. And uh, in the end, they're asking me, you know, who are you? Where are you from? Who do you know? What car do you drive? Where do you drink? All these, all these questions and, and all this stuff, you know, and what's your address? All these, all these questions that you're having to bat off and whatnot. And, um, and in the end, I thought, do you know what? In my real life, when I sit here letting two fucking idiots fucking 
you know, uh, interrogate me over the watch. So I said, listen, you're asking a lot of nosy fucking questions. Sell me the watch. I don't sell me the fucking watch. Do you know what I mean? And um, they went, nah, fuck off. You stink of old Bill. Fuck off. So I'm in there 45 minutes. So I go to the debrief and um, uh, I go to the debrief and, and they says, how do you think you did? I said, well, not very well. I didn't buy the watch. And he went, listen, let, let's let you into a secret. No one in the memory of mankind ever will or ever has bought that watch. <laughs> uh, and he went, that's not the idea. And I said, well, everyone else was in and out in 10 minutes. They went, yeah. Um, yeah, you, we've just had some feedback off one of the lads who's, who's one of the most experienced undercover cops in the country and he said you're a fucking nightmare you are a nightmare for anyone <laughs> in a good way so uh, yeah that was my sort of uh, introduction to did, you, did you come out of there thinking you'd failed? yeah absolutely I thought you know uh, 45 minutes to buy a bleeding watch and I couldn't buy a watch yeah, you know what I mean yeah. it's like but uh, you know, I was going with the role play and stuff like that, and you know they make it challenging and, and whatnot. And in the end, you come out, you know, the final words were "fuck off." You stink of old Bill. So uh, you know, you think, well, they haven't done very well, then, don't you? But uh, but that just shows you how your natural character traits slotted in with that. What they wanted you to do? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been, I've been. I look back, you know, growing up, I was, I was surrounded by you know dodgy uncles and stuff. So to me, it was normal to to be around these characters. You know, they, I, I, I stole all the traits off the. Of, Oh, every time I stepped on a plot undercover, I was I was I was one of my relatives. That's all I did. Yeah. To, to snatch their traits, who yeah. were pro, you know proper criminals. Mm. So I wasn't pretending, and I wasn't pretending. I've been around it all my life, so it didn't, I didn't find it hard to slip into. I didn't have to do breathing exercises to slip into the role of a criminal. You know what I mean? I, uh, I found it very natural. Sometimes I found pretending to be a policeman harder. Than me. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. So what was your first assignment? So my first assignment undercover was the Ben Police Officer. Oh, it was the Ben Police Officer. The Ben Police Officer, yeah. Who, how, how, had, how had you guys detected he was up to that? Well, it, 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 one of his family members was a, a serious villain. And um, so the police had lots and lots of intelligence about him. And there was surveillance being done and stuff like that. And then, you know, his, his brother, who was a cop, started to be picked up on the surveillance with him. Um, this isn't good, you know. Oh, but he declared him, you know, he declared his association and family members, you, you look, you know, I, I declared my, some of my family members in the past. You can't help who you related to at the end of the day, can you? You know, if you're a police officer, some, some police officers will have, you know, people who, who are involved in some serious criminality, you know, um, it's a fact of life. Uh, but then, you know, they, they started to pick up on this lad was not just visiting his, his, his brother, he was, he was bang involved in it. This wasn't in Manchester, by the way, it was another part of the country. Um, I'm, I'm, I've heard of stories like this out of Liverpool. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 it was it was another part of the country. Okay, uh, probably best not say where. Yeah, um, but um, ultimately, so they said, look, he also had a gambling addict, gambling addiction. This guy, and a, and a drug addiction, and a drink problem, and you know, he was trying to. His life was a fucking train wreck, to be truthful, really. You know, and. Um, he, he, so what they nicked, obviously, gear and that when he was taxing, they got to get rid of. So in comes uh, in comes Mikey, you know, and uh, I made him my pal, and um, I bought, bought his car off him actually. He was selling his car. That's all that Bought his car off him, and um, made him my pal. Which, bro- which brother was that? The, 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 the cop or the gangster? The cop. So yeah, I made him my pal. He never declared he was a cop to me. Uh, he, he kept maintaining this sort of uh, distance, kind of with, with his personal detail of it, and then eventually we, we were able to set up. Um, Except for buying drugs off him, and he was convicted. So wouldn't he be savvy though to like being infiltrated? No, like he, was, he, he, was, he was a uniform policeman, Sean. Like we said, that's why 
the level one tactic and level one cops. I kept so far. Most cops riding around Liverpool now or riding around Manchester, they've got a clue about the undercover yeah, world. It's worlds apart. It's worlds apart, Sean. You don't, you don't, when you become level one, you see, they don't, they don't even operate out of police stations. You know, you I never went in a police station for years. You know what I mean? It just, it just doesn't, it, it, it's kept it's clean and sanitised away from ordinary policing, the tactic, how we do it, who does it, for that reason. So does that result in sometimes the ordinary police end up arresting people like you by accident? Um, I, I never got arrested, but I certainly, I certainly had uh, on an operation down south. Um, I was, I was purported to be a lorry hijacker that was involved in uh, moving stolen goods and stolen vehicles and stuff. Um, so I was buying loads of stolen cars and um, high-value motorbikes and stuff like that, and Rolex watches and all sorts of stuff. And uh, I was Mike, Mikey the lorry hijacker, and. Um, the local cops obviously got wind of this. Uh, my name, my name is Mikey Bulger. But Mikey Bulger from Manchester's down here, fucking buying up all his stolen gear and that. And he's, uh, you know, he's, um, so they come in, they, they had a little lock up and they, they, they turned up two of them and I thought, oh, hello, hello, hello. You know, uh, these are, these are uh, you know, your average punter like it to sell me some gear. So uh, in they come and, uh, yeah, sure enough, the Lauren car comes out and they fucking give me the hard word, like, you know, uh, we fucking know what you're up to. Fucking, anymore, we'll come through your fucking door and all that. And I thought, fair play to them, they're doing the job, you know what I mean? But, um, you know, we had to, I had to get them off my back. So um, there's a number of ways you can do that. Because that probably added to the credit, your credibility at that moment, Well, didn't it? So, sometimes, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's useful to get pulled by the police. And sometimes we might have engineered that. We're only ones with a criminal. So, you know, I, won't, I probably shouldn't go into the tactics too much, but, uh, you know, may, may, maybe we might have engineered that when I was with a, with a body to get stopped by the police sometimes. Can I just ask you, this bent policeman, you bought the car off him, so can you tell us how you got the introduction to him and did he declare he was a police officer when you, when you first met him? Well, no, he, had, he, had, no, he didn't declare he was a police officer at all. Uh, and uh, the reason, I, I'll tell you how I did it, he, uh, he had a secondary job working behind the bar. And I knew through intelligence that he had his car for sale. So I used to go drinking in the bar and I used to sit there circling cars in the auto trailer. And he went to me, I've got a car for sale. Oh, have you? Mm. I went, I'm after a BMW. He went, I've fucking got a BMW for sale. <laughs> <laughs> oh, have you? Oh, handy. <laughs> I think it highlights the point, though, as well, that too much information you, you can have with you before you go into that situation can be, can be bad sometimes because you know he's a police officer. You yeah. don't want anything to come out that let him think, how do you know that? Well, what it is, Gary, that, to me, that was a quick hit job. You know, that wasn't a long-term infiltration. Mm. The, the, when I went into long-term infiltration, such as Mossade, I, I didn't want to know anything. No. I wanted a clean slate. I didn't want it to be a monkey on my back. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I didn't want it to be a... Because you could easily say something. Back. Yeah, because, you, you, like you say, you can slip into saying something. I mean, I was pretty good at not doing that. But, but equally, you, you, you've got to be on your guard all the time. Mm. So when I went into long-term cold infiltrations into Mossade and other places... I, I didn't. I wanted as least information as possible about individuals because also sometimes it can, it can, it can put you on your guard, you know, with people. Sometimes you have to know. So one of the kids I was into in my side now, the, the information was he permanently carried a firearm. So I, I needed to know that, you know, I needed to know that for my own personal safety, uh, and you know, so I could dynamically risk assess what was going on around me at the time. But um, yeah, it, it, in general, I, I just need to know. Need to know was enough for me. So when you go into situations like that, then do you have to have a fake identity and associated with that identity? 
are the like records changed on computers so you got some criminal history? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I had a full PNC record for depending on what character I was being, you know, uh, you know. But typically my, my my the role I would portray would be of a of a you know, like a serious organized villain. You know, an armed blagger, something of that nature. So it, it would be proportionate to that level of criminality. So you know, I talk about it in the book. One, one air from off side, it would be, you know, it, it almost evidenced my criminal apprenticeship, really. Starting off, you know, nicking cars as a young kid, nicking radios out of cars or whatever, moving on to uh, low level armed robberies, no further action, then moving on to, you know, 18 assaults. And then uh, I, I, my mind said I'd been arrested for firearms offences in Holland, um, but no further action because, you know, it, it won't be useful to me to say I've been to, to prison. It's important to, to mention, though, isn't it, that, you know, that some of these villains have contacts within the police who could check you out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you, you know, effectively, your own your own identity is, is removed and separate completely. And a new identity is set up for you. You have all the supporting documentation. Did you just say that it's useful to have some history of you being in prison? No, it's not useful. It's not useful. No, because it's far that. too checkable, isn't it? If I say, if I say, say to you, you know, I've been in... Uh, the prison you in America. Oh, oh well, you know, well, you'd, well, you'd work it out in five minutes, yeah. wouldn't you? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. you'd work it out in five minutes. No one saw you same, same, same in the military, unless it was a specific operation to uh, that was where it was useful to say you've been in the military. You know, it's not good saying you've been in. Uh, oh, I was in the Marines. Um, and so, literally, someone could pick up. Pound to a pinch of shit. Someone would go. I know someone who was in the Marines. Next thing you know, they're, they're telling your name around yeah. the Marines, and I've never fucking heard of this. What matter? It's like if you said you were in prison, someone could say, which wing was you on? Exactly. What wing? Oh, he was on there, were you? Oh, he was, he was in there with fucking such and such, such and such, such and such. Small, small world, isn't it? So it's just not something you want to do. But isn't a load, a load of no further actions a bit suspicious? That you, were never, you never did any prison time for those? Well, look, I never had to produce my documents. Uh, and the level of criminal I reported to be, I'll be quite frank with you, Sean, if someone had said to me, you know, you need to produce your documents, I'd say, fuck you, fuck you to ask mm. me to produce my documents, fuck mm. off. Mm. Fucking nobody. Do you know what I mean? That, that that is kind of that was the level of criminal I could report to be, you know. And I and I had other things around me that made that look real. It wasn't just me saying it. And that shows how real that is when you put that in relation to the watch incident when you said, "Rub off with your watch." Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's very different. This is this is the difference between you know the level twos. The level twos are going by the, the heroin and crack. They're they're purporting to be slaves to that drug, so they have to be subservient. You know, I'm sure you, you've been in prison with guys who, who were organised criminals who were subservient to no man, mm. weren't they? You know, and they I would go tell you nothing. Foot, you know, and they would almost see it as a challenge of I ain't showing you my fucking depths or whatever. Fuck off. Do you mm. know what I mean? The, the, so that was the level of criminal I could purport to be. But if you hear it over a police radio during a stop, maybe, and there's a villain there with you, hey, is that real? Does that sound real? Mm. <laughs> so is it around this time that you infiltrated the governors? No, I wasn't involved in infiltrating the governors. What happened with the governors was they, I mean, Gary could probably say more about that. Amiga was, was founded on the back of an infiltration into the football groups. And it was called Operation Amiga to infiltrate the, the, the governors, which were Manchester City's violent uh, hooligan crew. Uh, and it was that successful. I mean, Gary, Gary himself was involved in some of the football stuff, weren't you? Mm. Uh, and... Um, it was that successful that, you know, a really forward-thinking guy who was running the unit at the time, uh, he, you know, said this tactic could be used for serious organised crime, counter-terrorism, and that's when it opened up much further than football. 
uh, and they adopted the Amiga, or Operation Amiga, they adopted it for the name of the unit. So I wasn't involved directly in infiltrating the governors. Uh, that was much before my time, it was Gary's era. Uh, I, I was, by that point, we'd evolved into very much serious and organised crime and counterterrorism work. This podcast is sponsored by Harry's. Harry's is way more than a super sharp razor company. They're here to revamp your whole routine, from close shaves and flake-free hair, all the way to clear, healthy skin. Harry's helps guys feel great. For this sponsorship, Harry's is offering a free travel-sized shower gel with a trial set to you, the viewers, to give you a chance to try their other products as well as shave. Please make sure to support this podcast and give your own Shower shave a go by redeeming a free Harry's trial set. All you cover is £3.95 for delivery. Just head to harrys.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N, to have your set delivered and start a shave plan. Your freebie will be added at checkout. That's harrys.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting Harry's. Link is in the description box below this video. Anything to add on to that, Gary? Just, just what uh, what Shay's saying there. Obviously, it all started Amiga because of the football. The major problems in the eighties, the football hooliganism, um, and uh, they decided. Certainly, GMP did set up Amiga, uh, and that was purely to infiltrate football hooliganism. But with the success they had with it, with Bolton Wanderers, City, uh, they infiltrated United as well. Um, the powers uh, that be at, at uh, GMP thought, we could use this elsewhere. So then it was moved from uh, uniformed operational policing to the CID uh, under the wing of them. And then uh, the football went sideways and they concentrated on criminal, uh, serious criminal uh, matters. Um, and that's how it then progressed from there. And obviously I was in at the beginning and it moved on and moved on. And that's when Shea uh, came in. Uh, and they were p- dealing purely with um, serious, crime. serious and organised crime or, or serious threats to public safety. Imagine you can't be there when they get arrested because it was blow your cover, so you yeah. wasn't there when the copper was arrested. No, no, no. no you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't be, you wouldn't be involved with the arrest of them. Your bit, you, you, you go in, do your bit, the undercover bit, the infiltration side of it, you gather the evidence, you pass that to an operational team, they will then uh, decide when to strike and take out that individual. You won't be involved in Do that. you keep an eye on what sentences they get, these people that you infiltrate? Uh, yeah, you know, you would do because out of professional interest. Um, you know, I mean, I couldn't tell you all of them off the top of my head, you know. I mean, what, what? Do you know what the copper got? I don't, I don't know. I don't know off the top of my head. I think, I think he got about three years. I don't think it was very very long. Um, but he only, you know, it was, it was weed. It was weed. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know. And it was, it, if, if anything, it was more of a, a lever to remove him from the police uh, than, than an exercise. There was a job I did in there which involved a bent police officer. And uh, they all got arrested at the end, including him. And uh, I'll tell you what he was doing. He was getting paid for doing police national computer checks because they were into uh, um, jewellery reps. So they would get details of where they lived, follow them in the morning. They've got all the gear with them, these jewellery reps, and they'd attack them in the daytime. But they needed to know where they lived. This police officer was uh, getting them details from from the police national computer. He gets arrested at the end. And uh, he's got—I don't I forgot how much service he had, but he got pensioned off, so nothing happened to him. How much do you know? How much he was getting per information? I, well, I don't know what he was getting, but you know, even if he was getting twenty pence, he shouldn't have been getting it. 
That's the point, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, He's a police officer. There's, there's, you know, I've heard some, you know, stories over the years of better bent cops, you know, doing stuff like that, checks and checks on things they shouldn't do, accessing, you know, databases they mm. shouldn't access, mm. right up to them doing armed robberies, you know, with, with serious villains, you know, and it's the full spectrum. Murder, murder even. This guy know. was using other, other officers' details to get into the computer. When you say murder even, what was the circumstances of that? Well, obviously, you know, with uh, the, the Sarah Everard stuff, you know, um, the, the guy down south, this disgusting, horrible, mm. Wayne Cousins fella, mm. um, you know, and, you know, there was, a, there was an issue in Greater Manchester Police where a police officer murdered his wife and stuff like that, you know, but this stuff goes on, unfortunately, you know. So what was your next assignment? So from there, um, I got involved in a few bits and pieces uh, all over. Um, my biggest assignment next was Moss Side, um, and... Moss Side really was the, the, the hot potato of, of, of undercover work. What year was this? So this was this was 2010. And it, what happened, I sort of have to go back a little bit so, to, just so you understand the, the, the gravity of the situation. So the guy I talked about before, Lee Amos, a guy called Colin Joyce. Now, they were the leading lights in the Gooch gang. Now, the police had done some fantastic work. And take, they, they got convicted for multiple murders. I mean, I think they were responsible for something ridiculous, like 80% of all firearms offences in Great Manchester, these two guys. That's how dangerous they were. Um, and like I say, they're, they're both now away for 40 years each, minimum sentence. Uh, very, very dangerous lads, very dangerous. Uh, and they were, you know, manipulating younger people to do, commit acts of violence for them, uh, to carry out shootings, to sell their drugs, you know, uh, um, in- incredibly dangerous um, people. But when they got sentenced, there's a real intelligence vacuum now. Who's, who, a lot of the, the, the younger up-and-comings now, they're going to want this slice of this pie. There's a big, there's a big empire up for, up for stakes here now. There's, um, you know, who, who's, who's, who's going to be the next two Collins and, and Lees, you know? Because they're there. You cut off the snake and you cut off the, the hydra's head, another one grows, you know, it's just what happens. So we've got this intelligence vacuum. Fantastic work, but you can't just take your you can't just take your foot off the throttle now. You've got to you've got to keep it on because we cannot have a situation where teenage boys are getting shot dead in, in takeaways anymore. We cannot have a situation where you've got a community in fear. We cannot have a situation where you've got people driving up and down the road shooting at, at mourners at wakes, which was what happened, and, and you know indiscriminately firing weapons. You know there's people's children at risk, so the police have to deal with that, <clears throat> and so. Every tactic conceivable being used in Moss Side, every over and covert tactic, and it was decided that to get a grip on this intelligence uh, picture that we needed, um, we needed to send someone undercover. And the gang landscape was changed, as I touched on before. You now had an influx of uh, migrants from Libya and Somalia and conflict countries in Africa who were coming over here with, with their, their levels of violence in many cases, they were desensitised to mass murder some of these lads and couldn't put them on the street in that gang environment. It, it's, it's a toxic mix, you know, and the gang landscape was changing. So we needed to understand what was going on. So what happened was they punted, they punted the job around uh, the, the, the very small, tight network of undercover policing in the UK and even abroad, you know, because there's a level one you see you can work for I could work for European police forces or, or the FBI or whoever. You can work. You can work for any partner law enforcement agency. 
And um, nobody wanted the job because of the history of Mossad, because of the potential dangers, you know, that, 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 that lay ahead. And also that getting the right profile of somebody um, was difficult because predominantly Mossad was, was, you know, it is a, a multicultural area. And a lot of the gang lads were of West Indian origin, uh, so black. Uh, you know, we're not giving too much away. I'm a white guy. You know, um, so a lot of the a lot of the senior bosses thought it needed to be a black guy, but with that came risks because, like any community, family ties. You know, it, it's very difficult. You know, um, within within the West Indian communities and stuff like that. So that was an issue why why potentially you couldn't use a black guy, and also it felt a couple of them just didn't have the right demeanour. Um, and, you know, they went to other places in the country and they just couldn't find anyone who thought they'd do it. And eventually they said, look, we think it's going to have to be Mancunian. You know, it's going to have to be someone from Manchester, which is fraught with risk and danger. And, you know, I look back now as an older man, I think, what the fucking hell was I doing? You know what I mean? Yeah. But at the time, I, I was I was absolutely, like, focused, laser-focused and, and I had this self-driving determination to be the best at it. You know, I didn't just want to be another UC, I wanted to be the best in the country. I, that was my drive. That's how I thought at that time. Um... And I knew, you know, when they pulled me in and said, look, we've been thinking, you, you know, we think you're good at this. We think you could do my side. Do, do you want it? I made it, you know, I compromised down there. And I sort of remember sitting, I talked about it in the book, I sat back and went, I'm a compromised in my side. Growing up across the city, you know, I went to school there. I, uh, not in my side, I went to school in Manchester. Uh, at the time, I lived about nine miles away from my side. My family was still in Manchester. Uh, so, of course I'm fucking compromised. But I just went, yeah, I'll do it. So so, so I did the job. And, you know, I, I, I went on to spend the best part of 18 months, two years infiltrating my side. But it wasn't as simple as just turning up and pretending to give it Billy Big Bollocks and pretend to be a villain. Let, let me just say something then. So me and Wildman, then, when we were, we were late teens... Wildman used to score his weed in talk stuff and Moss side because we go, you know... Hang out, Piccadilly by the canal, and let's go to clubs and the raves. And in the same in Liverpool, they were, they were our go-to places to party. The only places where we had situations at one time in in talk stuff, would, he scored his weed in some Caribbean club, and we come out, and some guys approached us, grabbed our jewelry, blah blah blah, robbed us. And in and in Moss Side as well, he scored his weed, and we were going back to the car, and a gang of them just started chasing us. Fortunately, we got in the car and just managed to get away in time. But um, I just want to give the viewers, you know, that, that that's what it was like. Anything could happen. Oh, yeah, most For you to go in there as a white guy, because I was shitting it with wild man in, in, in some of these areas. He, did, he had no fear. And I think we just stand out like crazy, you know. You know he's like, ah. But, but, yeah, to go in as a white guy and, and to infiltrate what that must have taken, I can kind of comprehend some of it being in those neighbourhoods myself. Yeah, Moss Side's are, you know, as I said before, by and large, the, the, these gang kids are a minority. You know, they, they, the, there's some brilliant people in, in the community of Moss Side who do amazing work to keep young people away from this fucking nonsense that is gang life. You know, they do some brilliant work. And, you know, I was there to infiltrate the minority, not the majority. You know, I, I never, ever used any good and decent people. I kept them well away from me. The people I was interested in were, were the people that were harming that community. And that they were my targets. They were the people I wanted to infiltrate. The people that used firearms, shot people, hurt people, 
you know, and, and damage that community. They were the targets of that operation, not the good, good and decent people. Uh, uh, yeah, Moss Side is a funny place, you know, at times it can almost feel electric, Moss Side. It has a real tension, uh, palpable tension about it. You know, it's, it's, it's a tough, tough place. Um, but yeah, I knew that when I went in. I knew, you know, I knew, I knew that before I went in. I knew, I knew what the, the odds were. I knew, I knew it'd be a very difficult job. But like I say, I was incredibly driven. You know, I was like, Can you take us through the first day of you going in? Well, the first day, I didn't even step foot in my side. I didn't step foot in my side for months because it'd be silly to do that. You can't just turn up and give it Billy Big Bollocks in a flash card and say, I'm here, I'm uh, my kiddie arm blagger. just doesn't work like that, Sean. You've got to get invited in. Not necessarily invited in, but you've got to have some realism to you, haven't you? So I put a lot of effort into my legend, as we call it in the trade, my, my criminal persona. So my criminal persona there was Mikey O'Brien. And Mikey O'Brien was a, a, a Mancunian, born Northern Ireland. Um, so that gave me interesting links to Ireland and Northern Ireland, as you can imagine how I might use those and influence uh, and manipulate those links in my criminal background, which is what I did. And um, yeah, so I moved to an area just a few miles south of, of Moss Side first, and I got, got my face known there. And I became part of the furniture there. But you know, that's easy to say. I just moved there and got my face known. Who? What was your first interaction? Uh, do you know what? The, the, pubs, pubs and gyms for me. You know, pubs and gyms and places like that were easy ones because if you walk in a pub, Sean, and the barmaid shouting at you, usual, Mike, are you real? You're real, aren't you? You're a real person. People and people are giving you slaps on the backs and gangster hugs and giving you the high fist bumps and all this caper. You're real, aren't you? So me and Gary in the pub, we're shooting some pool. You want to, you know, talk to us somehow. How would you, what? Do you know what? My way wasn't to be, my way was never to come on, come on to people forcefully in that way. I would make myself an interesting proposition. And more often than not, they'd come to me. I would make myself a little bit mystery. You attract them to you. Yeah, so, so it's a little, something, you know, a little bit of theatre. So I was, I was driving around in a flash motor. I had flash clothes on. So I, you know, I'd be one of these, these fucking morons that parks my car like a dickhead in a disabled bay or whatever. I just pull it straight. I pull it straight on the curb outside the fucking pub, even though there's double lines. I'm just walking. People go, "The fucking hell's this, Herbert?" Do you know what I mean? But it starts to get you noticed. And I got my way not to speak to people. People think. I think people think that undercover you're going to be tapping people. Like, I want to be your friend. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just not the way. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's just not. I was very, very subtle. I was very subtle, and in the end, I, I knew that I could see people. Desperate to speak to me, and I got my way not to speak to them. And then eventually, their curiosity could not help them any further. They would tap me on the shoulder, and they wanted to be my friend. And then they were way less suspicious. Yeah, and they, they, then it's, it's of their own volition. I've not forced it on them. So I, never, I never forced myself on anybody. So you said you moved into a neighbourhood near Moss Side. Yeah. And are you just solo in the in a property? No. So um, you know. Working undercover in Moss Side, it was, you know, it was a long-term operation, this. We knew it was going to be a long-term operation. It wasn't going to be an overnight. It wasn't going to be six months. It was planned for long, long-term, a number of years, um, to get into that criminal community. And as, a, you know, as I was at the time, in my 20s, uh, in the gym every day, um, you know, purporting to be a criminal with money, not to have a female interest or not to show interest in females could be perceived as strange. As, as I'm sure you know, in that in that world, it would stick out like a sore thumb, wouldn't it? Why is this guy not interested in women? You know, it, people people would start pointing the finger. So I got I, we we got I had an undercover girlfriend. I had a girlfriend who was an undercover operative. Uh, she came and lived with me on the, on the plot. 
Um, yeah. She was what, why, um, what skill set did she possess? Well, she was fantastic. She was a great operator. She was, um, you know, incredibly intelligent, incredibly funny, incredibly smart, very quick-witted and complimented my, uh, she, you know, we looked right as a, as a partnership, you know, uh, effectively. I, I look like, uh, I look like, you know, Mikey the Arm Blagger. Uh, and uh, she looked like, uh, you know, Nicky the Wagon. Is there a temptation to get tattoos for a situation like that? Do you know what? No, not for me. I mean, I mean, I, I, I had tattoos anyway, you know, from, from, from military stuff and stuff like that. You know, I, I, had, I had tattoos, but it wasn't something I would have gone out and done, especially for an operation, no. Um, you know, it just wasn't something I'd have done. I'm just intrigued a bit. You know, when you say it was going to be a long-term operation, this, mm. but you can't know when you first go there who you're going to get involved with no. and what you're going to be told. So if there were certain offences taking place and you've got a close association with that, they might have had to close that down sooner rather than later. Yeah, right? well, I mean, that's what happened, Gary, to, to, to a degree. I mean, I mean, the job, really, you know, I look back now, and, you know, I ended up, I ended up a detective inspector in the police, managing covert operations, and there's no way on God's green earth I would have sent me down to do that job. There's no way on earth I would have, it would have passed my risk assessment. It was ridiculous I was there, you know, given my family roots and, and personal roots. Why did it? Why did they? Why, why, you know, why weren't people then risk assessing you at the beginning? I think, and, I think, and why did they let that happen? I think there was a failure in management, to be honest, Gary. I think there was a failure in the risk assessment. I think, unfortunately, as you know as well as I do, a lot of management around undercover policing, they've never done it. And so they don't particularly understand the risks and the threat that come with it. They mm. think they do, mm. but they don't, because they've don't. not done it. They've not been on that plot. They've not locked a mile in them shoes. And they think because they've been great detectives in the CID, they're going to be great uh, inspectors and DCIs and superintendents within mm. the corporate world. Mm. It's, a, it's a very, very different skill set and a very, very different set of risks that come with it. And unfortunately, um, yeah, I mean, I, I knew it was madness, you know, at the time, but I, I almost should have been saving myself as a, as a cop with three, you know, just over three years in the police to be sent to do that. What I'm trying to compare it with is Donny Brasco, because yeah. he did six years inside the mafia. And... His his brief was: it doesn't matter what you get involved with; it'll all be logged. And at the very end of this uh, operation, however long that might be, they will then get arrested, charged. Well, you've got to. We don't work along the same way here. No, I mean, you know, I mean, I'll move on to it. A crew I got into were really dangerous lads, and um, I, I was able to gather information where they they were on their they were armed, possibly on the way to shoot somebody. And the police had no choice but to intervene, and they, they were arrested with a, uh, a loaded Mac 10 in, in, a, in, a, in a vehicle, uh, uh, in a stolen vehicle. Uh, you know, these lads didn't carry, they didn't carry guns for sure. You know, they, they, they fucking used them, you know what I mean? Uh, so the police intervened with an armed strike, and then we had to risk assess should I have still been there? Because it possibly wouldn't have been hard for them to triangulate who, who the, where that information had come from. But actually, I stayed there for another 12 months after that. You know, which again, looking back, was possibly madness. You know, but that, that's who I was at the time. You know, I wanted to do it. So you moved near to Not Moss Side. You got your property. You and a fake uh, partner are living there. Uh, yeah. Together. Have you got people coming and going in the property? No, it was. I kept. I kept the property. Do you actually sleep there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come yeah. on, now you live there. You know, you live there. You, you, this is the this is the difference between a level two undercover operator and a level one. I'm there 24-7, I live on now. You know, obviously you do, you do go home to your real life, but 
that became few and far between. I, I, I became, you know, maybe I became obsessed with it. I became obsessed with the operation. I became obsessed with the, the job. I came, became obsessed with my objectives. Uh, and the more I got into it, the, the, the more obsessed I became. I think as an individual, though, there's a lot of pressure on your shoulders now because it stands or falls on you, doesn't it, that operation? All those people who are involved are on the periphery. You're the main man. Yeah, doing once, what you're doing. Once you start to make inroads into that community and you start passing back, you know, viable live intelligence that's saving, stopping serious incidents and, and helping the police to have that picture they need to protect people and protect the community. You know, GMP had the very old Manchester gangster, you know, and um, I was it. And you become pivotal. How's it work with the neighbours then? Like the neighbours coming over. Fancy a cup of tea, things like that. Do you know what you just treat you like? To be honest with you, do you know what, Sean? I, I would, I would always be pleasant and nice, but I think because of the package, I when I was operating at that time, Sean, I was sixteen and a half, seventeen stone. You know, I was. So the neighbours were probably too intimidated to come and ask for yeah, a cup of tea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was sixteen and a half, seventeen stone. I would train twice a day. I had, uh, I, I would sometimes walk around with uh, a ten grand Rolex on. And a, and a fucking five grand gold chain, and I have a 60 grand motor in down there. Now, I would paint the picture. What picture? What picture have you got in your head when I, when you when you you think of that? What are you thinking about? What would you be thinking if I was your neighbour? Yeah, I think this this guy's a dealer. He's balling. And you don't exactly. have to say anything, do you? At that point. So 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 I painted that. I, I, and I you know I would drop little things to paint. But but, but I always took when I'm in my persona as a, as a criminal. I took a lot of uh, inspiration from the, some of the guys I'd grown up around. So they always had manners. They always had a bit of uh, humour. Yet, equally, they were still telling you, you fucking cross me, your foot. And that's how I would come across, you know? Manners and humour, but all the while going, fuck with me today, I'll fuck with you tomorrow. And you even had the rave music now, didn't you? The house music. House music, fucking loved it. That's right, right on my street, yeah. So we, do, we all eventually we ended up in the clubs in Manchester and, you know, the warehouse projects and all them places, you know, I was in a lot. Um, you know, and various clubs and I did some, did some best work in that clubs in Manchester, to be fair. I got in and, you know, got into some dangerous kids out, out, out of that scene. So when you say you did some of the best work in, in those clubs... Could you take us through a night, how that would work, what we, who, you know, the conversations, how it would go? Yeah, so, you know, obviously, you know, the police have a good idea of which clubs are moody, won't they, you know what I mean, and where, where the gangsters are going and where the boys are at, you know. And so I'd get fed that information, and that's where I'd target. But I, I was shrewd in the way I operated. So before I started to... I, the city centre of Manchester, for me, was a real wild card because I could have bumped into anybody from my own life at any moment. Yet... You've got to remember this time now, Sean, I'm operating in a, ma- in a constant state of hypervigilance. You know, I, I, I talk about it in the book and say my, my human senses at that time were absolutely super tuned to my environment. I saw things happen before they even developed. You know, that's, what, that's the level my, my brain would operate at uh, 24-7. You know, and I always felt I would see a problem happening before it, before it hit me on the, on the nose. However, I'm in a, I'm in a garage nightclub one night and it's pitch black, and the DJ's banging out his bass line, you know, bass line garage and all that, bass is bumping, and uh, luckily, there was no, none of the boys from the Moss side I was, I was into there at the time, and uh, yeah, I hear this, Shay, Shay Doyle, Shay Doyle, so, fucking, fucking hell is this now, fucking light, the guy steps out of the dark and DJ booth, 
garage DJ. Went to fucking school with him, do you know what I mean? And um, I'm, I'm with Nikki, you know, the, the girl, and I go, fucking hell, you know, I've got to deal with this now. Luckily, there was no targets, no subjects there. So I fucking walks over and go, he goes, and, and luckily, are you still in the army? And I went, nah, I'm out now, I'm out now. He said, what are you doing now? Bit of, bit of crafting, you know what I mean? So like, yeah, 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 fucking like, you know, yeah, yeah. So he says, uh, I says, where do, where, where, anyway, where do you play? I'll come and see you. Making a metal note never to go to fucking any. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so again, I rolled me up with that one. I got away with it. But it was, and I mean, one night I talk again. I talk about it in the book. Uh, I had a girlfriend at the time uh, who knew what I was doing. You know, knew I was infiltrating gangs in Manchester. Uh, and one of her friends saw me in a nightclub with Nikki. And I was in the club so that that was back before I was in with my kebab, you know what I mean? It was uh, so that caused me. She, but she knew I was with Nikki, but how embarrassing for her. She can't turn around to her friend and say he's he's an undercover cop infiltrating Manchester gangs and he's that's that, he's acting apart with her. He can't. She can't say it. So she's got to play along with it. So she so she's now to her friends completely embarrassed because they think her bloke's running around town with another woman. You know? and, and as that pro, uh, operation progressed, your own personal life must have been taken. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, I detail it, I detail it in deep cover. Um, it, it, well, it, it destroyed that relationship effectively. Yeah. You know, um, How long had you been together? Uh, a couple of years at that point. Yeah, yeah. a couple of years. You know, so we settled. We, we had a house together and stuff. Uh, but I mean, I credit her in the book. She was a clever girl because I remember her shout, shouting at me a couple of times from the bedroom window when, when I was, was jump, walking back to my car. You're a fucking idiot, Shade. Please don't give a shit about you. And I looked back now, thought she was fucking bang on. She was bang on the bar, Yeah. <laughs> So how did this move over to you mixing with the Moss Side crowd? Yeah, so um, again, you know, uh, the girls working with absolutely was worth a weight in gold because the reason for that is, you know, you know, you you've been to jail. If you, if guys are around you in that world start saying I'm this, I'm that, I'm the other, you just think you fucking get fucked. You know what I mean, you dickhead. So I would never ever say to anyone I'm this, I'm that, the other. However. If you leave your talkative girlfriend after too much glasses of champagne and she says things to people, they take that in much more than if you say it, don't they? And she was a master at that. You know what I mean? Wow. You know, she was a master at that. So, uh, you know, she, she would drop things about my, the, the wonderful Mikey doing this, doing that, he's done this, he's done that, he's this, he's that, he's the other. Mm. But, you know, that I would never say. A professional criminal just would not say what I'd say. But I'd say I'm a nice, I'm a nice man, me. I'm a nice guy involved in property. You know, I'm involved in property. So what was the first deal or interaction you did in, in Moss Side? Oh, well, very early on, I, was buying, I bought some cocaine. Uh, literally, my, my objective was not to buy drugs. And, and, and you've got to be careful. You know, once you start getting bogged down into buying drugs, it, it can be laborious. And it wasn't the objective of, of the... But equally, buying some drugs can be give you credibility. You know, not, and you buy some drugs and no one gets nicked. Mm. What if you want to see you use it? Well, again, you know, I wasn't a user. I wasn't. I wasn't portraying a user. So I'm sure you've been around people yourself in in, in, in your own life. If they, if you said to them, you will have this fucking key of coke. They just go, uh, I fucking won't. You dickhead. Fuck off. Do you know what I mean? And I had that gravitas to say that. Mm. But equally, if I was ever in a, and it never happened to me, but if I was in a situation where someone fucking basically said. You fucking are having that line of coke. We don't trust you. We don't fucking like you. We don't know who you are. You fucking are, or you're getting it. 
then I'd have fucking hoovered it up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, because it's, it's, it's about... I had to do some coke when I met a certain organisation in yeah. Arizona, yeah. Yeah, you, you know, know. You, you know it's, it's, it's about protecting... As long as you can justify what you do, you know, then then anything is almost justifiable sometimes. Killing someone's justifiable sometimes, isn't it? You know, so doing anything is, is justifiable. But it never happened to me, and I was always able to walk, walk away from it. But equally, I did put in place some cleverer strategies so we didn't have to take drugs. And getting my bit to take drugs sometimes. Not out of threat, out of, you know, everyone has a line of coke now, don't they? You know, they go for a pint and a line, don't they? It's, it's ingrained in society. It's you know, yeah. And people do it out of friendliness. Hey, do you want a line, our kid? Do you want a line or whatever? You know, just get mad. So what, what, one, of the, one of the ruses we came up with was, we said that, uh, well, I didn't say it. She, she would say on people. Um, I got him off the sniff and the steads in when we were living in Spain. And uh, I don't get him back on it because he goes, he goes on the mission list for days. He, he can't just do one. He goes on the mission list for days. Uh, and also, don't, don't tell him I told you, but we're, we're having IVF for the baby and I need him clean. And people, people become very protective of me, I'd say. And someone, I remember someone, a kid offering me a line in the fucking toilet. And one of your gang kids saying to him, don't you offer him a line, you cheeky fucker. Fucking, you know, you fucking, and they've got almost protective on me. So drugs was, taking drugs was never an issue for me, you know, never really an issue for me. How many people did you have to go through before you got to do something with one of your targets? Like, well, well, buying drugs was easier than milk, if I'm honest, you know. Uh, the first, I bought an ounce of cocaine just as a credibility buying it, simply because this this kid was going on in here, I can get you this, I can get you that, I can get you this. You know, fuck it. And to be honest with you, just to shut him up, I said, get us an ounce of cocaine for Friday, would you? Get us an ounce of sniff. She says, yeah, yeah, no, I'm so Literally, I'd met this kid about 24 hours before. The, ne the next day, he's fucking delivering an ounce of coke to me, to me you know what I mean? And uh, do you want more, don't mind? I could have just bought through him. I could have just carried on buying through him quite easily. I need to reference me to anybody, you know? Because you're trying to get to the top then. That kid, he, nothing would have happened to him because it would have been suspicious. Yeah, yeah, he didn't get touched. He didn't get touched. You know, it, 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 we, obviously that has to be ratified by the Crown Prosecution Service. You know, there's a, there's a, a bigger public safety risk in there, and safety need for the tactic. We're not going to blow out, you know, we're, we're not going to take a small amount of cocaine off somebody and blow, that, blow out me as an undercover for an, for an ounce of cocaine. We're just not going to do it. And, and we've got that's cost up to that point just to get you there. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not cost-effective, is it? No, exactly, exactly. So, but equally, we understand that we have to have some credibility as a criminal. You have to do something a little bit criminal that nothing happens to anybody. It settles people down, doesn't it? How long before you would go up to the big boys in last time? Yeah, so, well, the, the crew I ended up with, uh, we met them in a nightclub, and um, they, they, they were very much up-and-coming, very, very dangerous. Um, I won't say they were sort of top-level gangsters, you know, in terms of, you know, when you think about, you know, importer, importers of, you know, drugs and stuff like that. They weren't, they weren't operating on that level. But in many ways, they were more dangerous. In many ways, much more dangerous because these lads would, would shoot you. You know, they would shoot people, kill people. Uh, they, they would protect their turf with absolute extreme violence if needed be, you know. And they were involved in... Um, Disputes that didn't involve the use of firearms, kidnapping people, you know. So, in terms of being top of the three gangsters, no, they weren't. But in terms of being dangerous, they were they were top level. You know, they were as dangerous as they, as you get. So I got into that crew, and I got into one one member in particular, um, which I detail in the book, and he, he effectively found it very hard to become his friend because he, his only interest in life was violence. 
And, you know, a lot of criminals are, will be interested in the football or the boxing or the MMA or, or whatever, you know, whatever it may be. And you can have a chat with them about any other thing. Even some of them are family men, family people, you know, you could, they'll, they'll have a chat with you about the kids and the place that they've had the kids to or whatever. You know, you can chat very normal family stuff with them. And there's some, some of them, I mean, some of the criminals I met along the way are, are, are genuinely quite liked, mm. genuinely liked. They were interested and funny and smart people. Um, but this lad was just gang gang life through and through. You know, it's all he had, uh, and his, his rep on the street was was what he lived for, effectively. And you know, a very dangerous kid. And I did some theatre with him, and I did some bits and pieces, and I opened him up to my started to open up my legend to him. Then introduced a bit of Northern Ireland stuff into him, and he started to think. Then he started to buy the picture that I was I was a, a, a good good level villain, and. It didn't happen overnight. It was slow. It was very uh, painstaking. It was little by little, just just throwing out the bait, throwing out the bait, throwing out the bait, till he bit. And then uh, I was on with it. And it weren't so much of me trying to buy through because I, I got introduced to an upstream drug dealer of his who was also somebody who, who supplied firearms. Um, and I started to get real confrontation with my, the management of... Uh, Amiga at that point because they they didn't authorize me funds to buy a kilo of weed, which would have given me some credibility with this guy, and allowed me to take it up to the next level to this guy, and they they refused to to give me that. And so I started to realize that I was that my own management were almost working against me. What was their argument for not giving it to you? Uh, to this day, I don't know. Uh, to this day, I don't know. Uh, I, you know. I'd love to think if I was going to be, you know, sit on the fence that they had other information about something that I didn't know was going on, potentially, because that can happen in the police. You know, we, we work in silos sometimes, don't we? Where other units may be developing intelligence that I don't know and don't need to know about, and something could have been a foot that was happening with that crew, potentially, and that might have been the reason. It might have been useful to maybe just tell me that, not tell me the information. You know, that might have been the, the, the better way, more professional mm. way of doing it. Mm. But... I actually came to the conclusion it was because they were actually wanted me to fail. There were certain managers in there wanted me to fail. Is there a possibility that, that upstream person was a plant by certain authorities? No, I don't think so, Sean. I think he, I think he was what he was. I think he was a villain, you know, who, who, was, who, was, who was involved with uh, gang members to ship products, and it was simple as that. And I've been introduced to him. I don't think he was a plant at all. I think he was. Um, or he might have been paying for protection somehow. Um, I, I don't think so. If I'm honest, Sean, I think um, I don't. I don't. I just don't think that's the case. I, I think there may have been other operational activity around him. You know that we call it a blue on blue. You know, for example, the National Crime Agency might be running it on him, and so they didn't want me to go any deeper into it. You know, uh, but they wouldn't share that information from me. It's very complex policing. At this level, at this level now, it becomes very, very complex. There's a number of players interested. You know, even sometimes MI5, you know, the National Crime Agency. Um, customs and excise. Customs and excise. There's, there's a number of players and you, you you just never sometimes, as a UC, going to know the full picture. Because you might be stepping on toes. Exactly, yeah, exactly. But it wasn't delivered to me in that way from my management. And if that was the case, it could have been. You didn't have to reveal the information to me. But that would have been, a, that would have been then to me a reasonable reason for me to step away from this guy. It was just, it was point blank given, no, we're not, we're not giving you the funds to, to buy through this guy. So, you know, that, that sort of put my back up, really. Um, because why am I risking my life on this plot in Moss Side every day 
to get into these people, to create opportunities, to painstakingly, you know, putting my own personal life on the back seat, back burner, and the risk I'm taking to get into these, you know, these people who are harming the community um, without the support of us. And what, what would it have cost that kilo at the time? I think it was about three and a half grand. So it was dropping the ocean, really? Dropping the ocean, to... absolutely dropping the ocean. When you, when you equate it to this guy we knew was supplying firearms to the Manchester Underworld and further afield, it's a drop in the ocean, isn't mm. it? You might have been a Freemason, Gary. Might have possibly, been. Yes. possibly. Yeah. <laughs> You've read my thoughts there, Sean. <laughs> All right, so at this point of the operation then, you've been gathering evidence, surveillance. Is there an evidence criteria, a threshold, whereby the arrests commence? So, so what happened was, this was an intelligence operation. So my job wasn't to gather evidence as such. It was to, it was to, 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 to obtain intelligence obtain information that we can make into an intel- a, a usable intelligence product. Uh, and, you know, as, as we know, phones are a goldmine for the police, aren't they? So I was picking up numbers of serious kids, you know, left, right and centre. And then those, the, the operational teams were able to, you know, do work on those phone numbers, which they kept secret from the authorities. And, you know, they were able to piece together jigsaws and, and you know, I'm not giving anything away there. I think any, any criminal worth his salt knows, knows how, how good the police can be with phones. And, you know, your phone will get you nicked quicker than a shotgun these days, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I, I had lots and lots of phone numbers and lots and lots of naughty lads. Uh, and, yeah, the, the, the main kid I got into, I, I was getting reasonably close to him uh, and we started to have a, a good working relationship. Yeah, I didn't want to be his best friend, you know what I mean? I, I kept myself almost a bit of a mystery to him. Which, which kept, you know, um, what, what's the saying? Uh, familiarity can breed contempt. So I didn't want to get to that situation with him where he, he had a bit of contempt for me. So it kept him at arm's length, but close enough that he, he started to trust me as a, as a trusted criminal associate. Uh, and then, he, he, you know, I'd obtained phone numbers and information. And unfortunately, you know, well, not unfortunately, the, the police had no choice but to intervene when he was in a stolen vehicle with um, some other people with a, a loaded Mac-10 and... Possibly on the way to, to shoot somebody. So that was the arrest point? That was the arrest point for them. But then I actually stayed on the job. I stayed on the job. And um, we actually opened a, an MA shop in Moss Side. Um, and I, f- I was asked to fetch in other UCs to introduce him. Um, and it started to, at that point to me, the job was starting to get a bit, I call it, the, the chapter in the book's called Pantomime. And I, I, mean, I called it Pantomime because it was. It, was getting a bit silly and new management had come in who did not like me one bit and um, they started to bring an ever-growing cast list into this this operation that I'd nurtured so so carefully and so well you know in my mind skillfully uh, and you know they didn't even ask myself or my female uh, colleagues uh, advice on the type of profile of somebody who should come into one side or the type of the way the operation should evolve. Were they expecting you to, uh, once you got ensconced in there as you was, were they expecting you to go wired up to a lot of these meetings afterwards? Yeah, no, I did. I did at times. You know, I made, a, I made an assessment personally, you know. I, I mean, you know, talk about it in deep cover. One, one time I was in, in, in the... He asked me to come and meet him, the guy I was into, Anton. Um, and, you know, intelligence was he was permanently armed. So really dangerous situations, you know, to, to be putting myself into and he asked me to meet him one night and uh, he just, I go and meet him and he, he starts to direct me in the car. I have no idea where I'm going. And um, 
he starts to direct me towards Cheshire, up towards the sort of lanes in Cheshire. And um, I'm thinking, he's going to fucking blow my head off. Mm. You know, I'm thinking, he's going to blow my head off. This is a fantastic place to, to put one in the back of my head and leave me. Quite now, how long did you know him at this point? Probably known him about six months. Right. You know, so I'm subtly trying to detect any changes in his demeanour towards me, any little micro expressions, any little tells. You know, is he, is he not happy with me? Is there something not, it's not quite right here? And that was the day he introduced me to his upstream supplier. So, it, I, you know, I showed that having a set of bollocks and going, and going for the prize was what Undercover Work was all about. So, so if you weren't flexible and you said, I'm not coming, yeah. you'd have probably yeah, thought, yeah, so were you? Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly, yeah, exactly. You know, so, but equally, you know, uh, it's a bottle tester. I think I, this is the difference, though, is where we say some police officers could do that job and some police officers would never be able to do it because that, that's... That's the difference, I think. The difference, isn't it? That's the difference. You, you won't do that. It, You've got to be thinking, looking back, you've got to be pretty silly to put yourself in that situation, really. But, mm. you know, is it worth it? In the, you know, it turned out, for me, it wasn't worth it. Well, I've had this discussion with you in the, in the past, and you've said exactly the same as what I thought. When you're in that situation, you get a buzz from it. Yeah, no, that's true. You, you, you are getting a buzz from it. You, you, you are testing yourself now at the highest level, aren't you? And mm. the highest level of risk there can be is this guy that's sat next to me. He's got a gun, does he want to kill me? You know, and I never had a death wish. I wasn't, I wasn't gung-ho. I always was always managing risk every second of every minute when I was working undercover. I was always dynamically managing the risk, but you know, I did, um, I did get a buzz from it, and I can't lie. It is addictive. Undercover work is addictive. When they got busted with the Mac Tan, was suspicion cast on you? Well, I immediately thought, you know, they're, they're, they're going to think it's me, and and you know, I was amazed really that the, the sort of management amigas weren't weren't that fussed around whether that was a possibility. And we're quite happy for me to stay on the plot, you know, doing the job. Because if you get arrested, it's your legal right to get your police discovery as to how, what led to you getting arrested? Well, but there's certain mechanisms in law, isn't there? Uh, public immunity, public uh, interest immunity laws, where the police can go to the judge and say, we, we don't want to disclose this because it would potentially cause harm and it's not in the public interest. That's a, it's a perfect legitimate law and it happens in a lot of covert operations up and down the country. And that would be a classic case. That would be a classic case, yeah, so public interest immunity. I think that's different from America then, I don't know how it works. Possibly yeah. is, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, look it up. Uh, public interest immunity. And it's, you know, it's, it's not a secret. It's not a secret. Everyone knows that we can, we can do that, you know, and... Um, so in the immediate aftermath of that, then, what was the atmosphere like with the, when you were swimming with the sharks? Uh, well, look. At the end of the day, it's, we're taking some dangerous players off the off the off the off. off we're taking a gun, you know, serious serious piece of hardware, or some really serious lads. It, it, you know, would would kill people. So, did you have to express concern to the gangsters you were hanging out with that this had gone down? Did you were you like? Yeah, I mean, it was discussed. You know what I mean? It was discussed. But at the end of the day, you know, they're in that world, aren't they? They're in that life. It's a hazard of the trade. It's a hazard of the trade. You know. And, uh, you know, the fucking, more, more than anything, I'm sort of giving it fucking got to it in the fucking car. You know what I mean? Could have been. I think they become that blasé, though, that there were probably loads of people who knew they had that with them that night. Possibly. So, you know, this is it. You know, you, you, you don't you know what you don't know, do you? Well, you don't know what you don't know. And uh, there could have been other people who knew that, that information, and that's, um, you know, that's it is what it is. I got away with it. Anyway, I got away mm. with it, you know, and... Um, but for me, it was good. It was, it was a job well done, Sean, because, you know, th that's why this operation was set up, to take away dangerous people who will go out and kill people. And, you know, they'll do it indiscriminately, you know, sometimes. 
it had happened in Marseille. Young people had been killed, young teenage, innocent teenage boys shot dead. So I had no qualms about it, Sean. So the next chapter after pantomime then is smack, crack and two stolen tellies in deep cover. <laughs> yeah, so um, so after Mossad, it sort of ends in, you know, not, not great with my, my relationship with the management and I need to get out of Manchester. I feel like it's closing in on me a bit. Um, so first of all, before I moved to, to, the, to the operation, I, I, I um, talk about in that chapter, I did some work in Holland, working for the Dutch police undercover and... Um, uh, did some bits in Belgium as well uh, and also went working for the Metropolitan Police where um, we've we set up an operation to buy some firearms down in London So how does that work then? You just show up in Holland? No, no, so there was, an, there was an undercover operation already in commencement where, and I was just there supporting a, another undercover cop you know, a, um, uh, you know, a, a, a Dutch UC who, who wanted to have a, 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 an English connection so uh, I was his English connection and just sort of went out there to make him look real like he had some real English gangster pals. So because you're from England then, you don't have to have a local history? No, just visiting, you know, I'm visiting and whatnot and uh, I'm, over, I'm over from Manchester to visit my pal. Uh, you know, we had a little backstory of how we, how we knew each other and, and whatnot and it was just sort of pad him out on a few, few little things with a few, few of the kids he was around. And do you find that was easier, going overseas and doing it, or it had other pluses and minuses? Well... Anything was easier than working in Manchester for me because I was constantly, let alone trying to just get into the villains uh, and the criminals community and dealing with all that, the risk and the risk and everything that comes with that. I was also trying to avoid family, friends, and you know compromises we call them. You know, I was constantly um, my alert state was at, was at 100 all the time. You know, and it happened. I did bump into people I knew. Um, I detailed one in the book where. You know, it could have come very much on top of me. You know, I remember one, one day, one of, one of my pal's dads who I'd grown up with was, I'm with two really naughty lads, and uh, he's, um, he's on a, he's a scaffold, and he's shouting up me, scaffolding by my real name. Oh, Shay, Shay, you know, so I, I, I was just riding my luck all the How time. How did you get out of that? Uh, what did I say? So it's my middle name. <laughs> so ah. I mean, <laughs> and funnily enough, I did have Shay as my middle name in my passport, if I, if I needed to check it. So, um, you know, um, up there for thinking down yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on the spot. Yeah. So, but, I mean, equated in the book to uh, undercover work for me, it's like being like Ronnie O'Sullivan. It's like, oh, you, don't just deal with the shot you're dealing with there and then. You've got to think three shots ahead. And that's what I was always doing. Everything that could possibly happen. Yeah. It sounds to me, though, after the most side job, you become a bit disillusioned a bit. Oh, massively, because, you know, new, new management come in and, and they couldn't stand me, to be truthful. I think I, they, they thought I was a bit of a loose cannon, you know, because I would do things that maybe other UCs wouldn't, you know. If they told me not to go in a certain pub because it was too dangerous, then I had, I had form for just kicking the doors open and bouncing in, you know what I mean? I was, I, it may look gung-ho, it may appear gung-ho, but they, they, I had people telling me not to do it who had never walked in my shoes, you know. They'd not done it. So I knew it wasn't actually that much of a problem for me to walk in any pub in the country. There's not a pub in this country I wouldn't walk in. There's not one in this country I would not walk in. You know, and, I, and I've done it. We've done it. And no one's ever put it on me in a pub, you know. It's not happened. Mm. If, you're, if you go in there, respectful, polite and decent, most people just let you get on with your drink, you know. And um, so I had, no, I had no fear of going in any pub. You know, it just didn't bother me. Uh, whether that's gung-go or not, I, I don't see it as being gung-go. I saw it as... 
undercover work is about accepting the risks and dealing with them. As the, as, 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 as so after Moss side, did you, did you want to carry on or did you feel like you were going to get out? No, I, I, I knew that normal policing would not cut it for me. You know, undercover, undercover work, as you know, Gary, is, is dangerously addictive, isn't it? Mm. You know, it's, uh, mm. you are challenging your mind, you're challenging your brain. You're never going to get that high again, are you? You're never, you're never going to get it, you know? And uh, I knew that if I went back to conventional policing, it, it, it would not cut it for me. So I, I wanted to carry on working undercover. I just knew I needed to get away from Manchester. I knew I needed to get away from this management team who couldn't stand me. And I couldn't stand them, to be truthful. You know, I've not got a lot of time or anything nice to say about them. But, um, um, so an operation, I, I, you know, went off to Holland doing bits and pieces in London and whatnot. And then a, a, a long-term operation was offered to me in Cambridge, which to be truthful at the time I thought was underneath me, a bit beneath me, which sounds a bit disrespectful, I know, because it was living on a, on a, on a shit old estate down there, dealing with a burglary problem and theft problem, large-scale theft problem. And I, I, you know, I was... You know, my kid a gangster, you know, uh, had nice cars and, you know, uh, armed blackguard and all this caper, you know, and, and went for, you know, gun-toting gangsters. That, that's the way, that's the level I pitched at, you know, as, as an undercover cop. But it wasn't underneath me. It, it was actually, in many ways, more criminally challenging than, than the Moss Side job. Yeah, the odds of being shot had dropped, but I was dealing with sometimes 10, 12, 15 criminal transactions a day, you know, buying, selling, uh, dealing with risk, you know, dealing with all sorts of issues, not just even, not just even like kids who had access to guns, but, you know, uh, there's one issue I dealt with where I go and buy some stolen property off um, uh, a cracking heroin addict, uh, and they basically lead me into an ambush from some London drug dealers, and the, their, their child is, is, you know, babies, 18-month-old toddlers, crawling around amongst shit and crack pipes on the floor. So this now, I've got to deal with that. You know, I've got to, I've got to get that kid away. So this is the reality of, all the different dilemmas you can face as an undercover cop every single day, not just a risk to you, but the risk to others that you've got to get that information back to, so the police can protect them. How did you get the kid away? So, I mean, I'll tell you the little story. So I was dealing with this, this guy who was a complete piece of shit, to be truthful, uh, a house burglar, uh, and he had, a, he had a missus. They were both hopelessly addicted to crack and heroin, and he, he, he was a real horrible piece of work to her. You know, he'd, he'd, he'd give her a slap and um, he, he just permanently would abuse her in front of you. And, and, and I fucking hate him, to be honest, Sean. I, I, I genuinely, over the, over the months I knew him, it was, a, it was a very, it was a hard struggle for me not to punch his fucking head in, to be truthful. And, um, but I mean, I managed it, you know, I stayed professional. Um, but my gut was telling me to do that because he was a horrible man. And... Um, I would normally meet them out away from their home address and he would sell me laptops and fucking all sorts of stolen goods and high value watches that he nicked in burglaries. They were prolific. Him and his, him and his thieving partner were prolific. I think they were the most prolific uh, house burglars in Cambridgeshire and um, constantly needed to feed their massive habits. They were, they were real pieces of work to be fair. And uh, he asked me to come and meet him at his house one day, which was very unusual. So I turned up, I tip up, I think, why not? And... Um, the house, you know, I open the door, it stinks, it's, it smells, it's a mixture of scag and uh, shit, dog shit, human shit, uh, you know, that, that scag smell and weed as well and just all mixed into one. And I walk in and fucking, there's, you know, the asthma inhalers have been turned into crack pipes, you know, makes you crack pipes, there's shit everywhere, you know, fucking old Kentucky on the side, stinking, you know, bad bin bags just piled up and empty fucking milk stinking, uh, dog shit on the floor. 
and uh, I looked down as a baby crawling amongst it, needles, mm. you know, needle, heroin uh, injection needles, burnt oh, spoons and all that. So I see the I see the baby there. Fuck's sake, you know what I mean? This is this is inhumane. And um so I say to I say to him, right, uh, G, you've called. What are you selling, G? What can I do up and go all day? Because I just want to get back and get him. You've got to do something about this kid. So uh, next thing I know is a um a black kid steps out of the dark with his hood up. And at the time a lot of black kids were from, from were coming up from London. So it's setting up in like the users' houses, selling crack and heroin. They call it cuckooing. Uh, no, uh, I call it home invasion. People call it cuckooing. Sounds a bit cuckooing. They call it cuckooing. Yeah, um, it's known as cuckooing. Like the county lines drug gangs, they'll they'll come up and dominate an area. You know, give give the local local boys a slap. Say you, you, yourself for us now, or, you, or you're not working. It's up to you. Then they'll then they'll typically get a local user. They'll install their drug dealer in there for the week or whatever. Uh, and uh, they'll live there, and they'll get a bit of crack or a bit of heroin or whatever for their troubles, and uh, they, they'll deal crack from there, and they'll move on to someone else. And they call it cuckooing, which sounds really, you know, it sounds really, really nice actually, doesn't it? Oh, we'll be cuckooed, but it's actually a home invasion. You know, it's it's, it's a terrifying thing for for you know a lot of these a lot of these heroin and, and crack addicts have children there, you know. Um, and so he steps out of the darkness, this guy, and at the, some, at the time for some reason they, they'd all called themselves Roy. I think it was just to confuse the police, you know, and they never gave the real name to him to the to the users, just Roy, or it'd be the Roy line or whatever. So this guy, this black kid, steps out, and he goes, he looks at me, the, uh, he, and he, he says, uh, he's staring at me and sucks his teeth at me. So uh, I fucking knew straight away he was a crack dealer, you know, that was he, he doing this cuckooing in their house, and basically they'd set me up because he'd heard there was this guy from Manchester down there doing all the criminal business. And a lot of the lads were coming to me saying, we don't like these guys from London, will you fuck them off and we'll sell for you? Because, I, you know, I, was, I would act like I was a pretty heavy kid, you know. I would act like I was a pretty heavy villain. And they, the lads on the estate were buying it. And they thought I, as a Manchester kid, would have the, the clout to fuck these off. You know what I mean? So they were coming to me saying, Mikey, will you fuck these London kids? They're horrible to us, they're not nice to us, you know what I mean? You fuck them off and we'll sell for you. So this guy got 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 the sort of lowdown. He says, "I'm just here to check out the competition." Sucks his teeth at me. So I said, "You fucking sucking your teeth at? You suck your fucking teeth at me, mate." So he says, "You see fucking what?" So I says, "Yeah." And I don't want to get anything to kick off in front of the baby. But I've now got to show some some front now, some bottle. So I say to the girl, I say, "Take the baby in the bedroom, would you? Put the baby in the bedroom." So she takes the baby, and he goes, uh, "I was listen, mate. You're a fucking crack dealer." Says, I'm not in that game. I'm in the fucking goods game, not fucking crack. You get on with your fucking crack, mate. Leave me alone. And I'll fucking leave you alone. You know what I mean? You don't need to look at me. You don't need to look at, take a look at me. I'm not in competition with you, our kid. You know what I mean? And uh, so we have a bit of an exchange. And he fucking decides, you know, like I say, at the time I was, I was, a, I was a big, big old lump. And uh, he decides, you know, discretion is a better part of valor and sort of rules. Yeah, no problem, no problem. Plus he's on his own, you know. Could have had anything, could have had a knife or gun or whatever, but listen, you know what? I operated on the front foot undercover. It's what I did. I was good at it. If for others, it's not, it's not the way to go, but it worked for me, you know? I'm not trying to make out I was the big hard man or anything like that, you know? There's, there's many a kid who give me a silver medal for sure, you know? But in that world, if you don't show some bottle, you're fucking done. You're done, Sean. In, in the criminal world, if you don't show, jail world, if you don't show some fucking bottle, win, lose or draw, you are done. 
And it was no different for me being an undercover cop, purporting to be a criminal, I had to show some bottle. And that's what I did. And uh, it worked for me, luckily. Um, so I, I fucking went, I mean, you can shove your fucking, whatever you buy, whatever you're selling me up your ass. You fucking, don't you ever fucking set me up like that again. And I walked out and I rang the cover officer. We have a cover officer, they're called. And they're, some, they're like, you're linked to the police. And I rang him and, and I was fucking heartbroken, Sean. And I said, I don't care if it compromises the operation. I don't care if it compromises me tonight on this plot. Get that fucking child away from that house now. Fucking get it done. And, um, you know, they, the, the, the powers that be kicked into, kicked into uh, drive and, you know, social services and, and police protection safeguarding units were able to protect where the information come from, but go and, go and deal with the child, you know. But situations like that could happen frequently, you know. So it's not just about buying guns, buying drugs. It's not just about trying to get into gangsters. Sometimes you're protecting children. I just wondered how, how it's got that far, you know, how the kids in in the first place, how it's not been spotted. They were on the radar of social services, but a lot of the time they'll clean up their active, there's going to be a visit, and sometimes you get they get these spot visits and whatnot, you know, and, and to be quite frank with you, you know, having later in my career dealt with some child protection issues, it's quite difficult to get children removed from parents. It's actually quite difficult. It's not as easy as you think, you know, so they were in the system, um, you know, and... Plus, I think social services underfunded, understaffed. Yeah, there's lots, yeah, there's and there's lots of failings coming in. There's lots of failings in the system, unfortunately. There'll be many more, like the one you've just described. Many, many more, many, many more, and it's and it's, but you know, it's a difficult one, isn't it? You know, mm. the, the, G, the guy got five years in jail, uh, and she, uh, she, ne she never got touched. She, she could have done. She could have been. She could have been. She was involved in the conspiracy to burgle because she was profiting from it, uh, and she was hands-on with selling, selling stuff. But the police took the decision with the CPS not to um, check the charge. But let's not imprison her. Let's get her help. Uh, you know, I'd, and I'd love to think that she got clean and got away from him and got away from that influence and her and the child got a nice life now. But unfortunately, I probably, probably hope, probably don't mm. think that's the case. Mm. How did the two stolen tellies come into that? Oh, mate, that was the smack crack and two stolen tellies was just a, a, a name we made up for the chapter because I was buying televisions, I was buying, you know, everything, you know, I was, I was buying everything. I mean, one, one story I tell in the book, which um, was quite humorous, really. I was, I was into these young burglars, this young crew, and they, they were doing like posh gaffs and posh flats and that all over Cambridge. And they, 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 nicked, a, uh, they nicked a laptop from this uh, posh gaff in, in Cambridge. And uh, so I bought it within half an hour of it being nicked. Uh, literally, you come straight to me with it. And it's a good job they did because the, the guy who was was a CIA agent on posting to the UK. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that could have been a diplomatic incident. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I hope uh, we ever go. I should have got a medal for that one, really. A medal wow. of valor from uh, from the Americans. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How, how did they get into places like that then? That, you know, oh, the CIA guy would be in a secure. No, no, it was just in a flat. It was just. I mean, again, I don't. I don't know if it was a CIA laptop. Yeah, it may yeah. have been a personal laptop, but. You know, I, I'll never know that, but uh, yeah. So we had to give that back straight away. But uh, it was just—it was just a private flat. You was a, you know, you know, private safe house. Or Can they get in anywhere, basically? Oh, got listen, alarm listen, or anything. These thieves, these professional thieves, are ingenious. You know, they're absolutely ingenious. Uh, you know. They can, Anything they can get around anything. There's a workaround for anything, isn't there? You know, uh, and some of them if they put their efforts into other things. They've been millionaires. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. They're, they're ingenious. Yeah. I learned lo loads off these some of these young thieves. You know what I mean? Yeah, they, they were fantastic. You know, <laughs> and, and you know, like, like I say, Sean, 
some of the lads I met, you know, met were criminals. They were fucking interesting, smart cookies, good lads, you know what I mean? I thought, you know, it, it just needed a bit of guidance. I've said that in the past. Some of the, if, if they were who you who they believe you to be, they would be good mates. Yeah, absolutely. Some of them, yeah. No, some of them are genuine. Who, who uh, you listen, say I, you were. You know what? I, 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 I've worked, I drank in pubs with criminals when I was undercover. They were like more than some of the cops I worked with, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. uh, it, it was more about them than some of the cops I worked with. I had more morals, some of them. Yeah. If they apply that to legitimate business interests, Absolutely. Yeah. They wouldn't yeah. end up spending half their lives As Del Boy says, we could be millionaires this time. <laughs> yeah. It's quick money, isn't it? They want quick money. And also, do you know what? You know, committing crime sometimes, it can be fun, can't it? Going on a bit of a mission. It's a buzz. It's, it's a buzz, yeah. yeah. I think the other yeah. question to ask there, though, now, because you've just said that, is was it ever suggested that you were suffering from Stockholm Syndrome? Yeah, so um, at, the end, at the end of that operation, um, I was meant to go to a major city in the UK uh, where I was going back into the big league, if you like, against some uh, uh, coke importers uh, and coke and heroin importers. And I was I was teed up to be the primary UC on that operation. And um, unfortunately, um, my rift with the management had, um, had gone, had become unrepairable. So they decided that I, I was done undercover. I was going to go back to conventional policing which didn't work for me, you know, uh, at the time I was obsessed with undercover police and that's what I did, you know, that's what I saw myself as. Uh, and so that 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 uh, agency that wanted me to um, infiltrate the, the importers uh, said, why don't you transfer to us, uh, transfer to us away from Greater Manchester Police now and just come and work for us and we'll put you straight into our undercover unit uh, and go straight into the job. So that, I started that process. Uh, I met their management, they, they were happy to have me, and I started that process. And then the, the vindictiveness of the management at Amiga, they, they told the other management at this other agency that I had Stockholm Syndrome. And what that means is that, that uh, I didn't know if I was a criminal or a policeman. It's like going native. They, said, they basically said they'd gone native, that I, I was a criminal effectively. They believed I was, uh, I'd crossed the line and was, I didn't know if I was a criminal or a cop. So no, no undercover unit is going to, worth the salt's going to touch you. Liability. So the next chapter then was a villain's welcome. Yeah, well, that's pretty much it. That's, that's pretty much it, a villain's welcome. You know, where uh, I came back from Cambridge, I had a Crown Court judge's commendation, uh, you know, which is quite a high, high, high accolade for an individual police officer to get. Quite often they're given out to teams, and murder teams, whatever, but for an individual cop to get, as an individual, uh, a, a Crown Court judge's commendation, it's quite a high accolade. Uh, and that was normally, normally be given to you with a, a cup of tea with the chief, the chief constable and a shake of the hands and a little picture and stuff like that. Mine was placed in a bin bag and, um, by my manager, Amiga, and um, it was given to a security guard for me to collect. Nice find. Yeah. So uh, that, that's the level of vindictiveness that, um, that, that, that my relationship with them had gone to. So what happened in, I don't know if I pronounced it right, Withenshaw? Yeah, Withenshaw. So, so what happened... The Chronicles of Withenshaw, the chapter. So, yeah, I mean, when I came out of undercover police and I was really disillusioned with the police, I, 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 I had real distrust for senior management. Um, I literally did not see my future in the police anymore because for me it was undercover or nothing. Uh, and they initially put me in a broom cupboard copying discs, which is just, you know, if you're going to ever damage someone's mental health, who's been spent the best part of their career running around playing the, the professional criminal, it's just not the way to go. I'm just laughing at this because this is what happened to me yeah. all those years before. 
Yeah. You didn't end up in Winshaw. Not in Winshaw, but I ended up in a in room with no with no windows, <coughs> oh, co copying videotapes. That's where they stuck me. I thought that uh, was and they did the same to him years after. And they said to me, I was a guinea pig, it won't happen to anybody else. Yeah. <sighs> it, it, and it was designed to, to mess with my mental health. Mm. It was designed to mess with mine, you know, to, to put a cop who's done what I've done into a broom couple copying discs, you know, in a you know, four before room. It's, it, it, it's cruel. It's, it's actually quite cruel. I thought it was just a cliche from the movies, you know, when they say, we're going to put you back on that desk job. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, well, yeah, absolutely. It's not, unfortunately. You know, it's subversive punishment. It's because, because, you know, I, I wasn't one for, you know, I wasn't one for taking shit off management. You know, Because you've had the audacity to stand up for yourself. Yeah. They think, they try and knock you down. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, my very last day at Amiga, I had to go see the psychiatrist and um, because you will regularly see the psychiatrist as a level one you see just to make sure that you're um, you know you're, you're not lost the plot and um, the psychiatrist said to me um, you do know you'll never work undercover again and I said oh yeah why is that and he said because uh, what it is Shay, he says they kick you and you kick them back and police management don't like that mm. but listen who do you send to infiltrate criminal gangs some uh, world career yes people don't last two minutes you've got to send people who've got a bit of that about them you've got to although they don't last five minutes you'd be scraping them up off the floor be a bit of a car petrol on them it's just have you, have you ever seen the film a few good men jack nicholson he's the general good men. yes and they get him in the box and eventually breaks down and says you need people like me and that's what they need is that the one where he's people like him you can't handle the truth that's right you well. can't handle the truth yeah, yeah. you need people yeah. like me yeah and it's a classic. It's, it's the truth, you know. To, to, to do undercover work at level one, you have to have a certain temperament and a certain capability to, to, to do that work. And it's akin to some of the more dangerous criminals you'll meet. There's the, the skill set and the, 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 uh, the, the, the personality traits they have are very, very closely aligned. Very closely aligned, you know. Um, you know, there's been psych psychiatrists and, and work done on it. And top-level UCs and top-level, you know, dangerous criminals, quite often their, their personality traits ain't too far apart. The DNA is not that far separated. There's a know? lot of thrill-seeking going on. Yeah, mm. exactly. You know, and just having that capability to be on your own and do things that are dangerous with dangerous people, you know. The, the, the skill sets, the, the personality traits, eight a million miles apart. So the action kicks off again with Manhunt, which I'm assuming is the Dale Cregan situation. Oh, so just, sorry, just quickly on Wivenshaw, yeah, no, th this was the job that got my sort of mojo back for the police, really. Uh, I ended up in, in a major incident team as a detective, and uh, I ended up um, getting given a little job that was meant to be a little tidy job that was a nothing job. I ended up recovering um, the biggest seizure of firearms in Great Manchester Police that year, yeah. single seizure. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I basically uh, identified a guy, went to his home, I ran upstairs in the, through the door in the warrant, and um, uh, he's, he's lying in bed, and he's sitting, he's sitting up bolt upright, sort of in shock. And uh, I said to him, is there any guns in the house? And he goes, no. And uh, out of instinct, I just pulled the quilt back, and uh, there was a Bradelli pump-action shotgun lying next to him, and a Glock, Glock 9mm pistol, both loaded. It sat in the bed with him. So I uh, died on him instinctively, you know, stupidly or instinctively, call it what you like. Um, died on him, arrested him, and then uh, I searched the, searched the rest of the house and found a Scorpion submachine gun and a Tariq 9mm pistol, which had been uh, fetched in from Iraq by, a, you know, a war prize from a squad, and over a thousand rounds of ammunition. All so in who, one hit. Who, who were those we uh, weapons destined? So the, 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 he was the storeman for a, for a Withenshaw 
uh, organised crime group. So Withering Shores an area of Manchester once had the auspicious title of being uh, Europe's biggest council estate. Uh, and it's a, you know, it's, a, it's a prominently white working class area. It's very, it's a bit like Salford, really, Withering mm. Shore. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, got, it's got its rough parts, but most people are good working, decent people there, you know what I mean? But, you know, obviously it's got its organised crime group and, uh, yeah, th th those weapons were, belong to the, probably the most serious organised crime group in Withenshaw. Wow. So, yeah, we took a lot of, lot of firearms off the street and, uh, but it got me, it got my mojo back for the police. I thought, I have got something to give outside undercover policing, you know what I mean? And, uh, so I started to get a, a feel for being a normal detective again. Albeit I was still working in sort of specialist operations. It wasn't just, I wasn't just sort of your average cop on the beat kind of thing. How'd you got the tip off to be at that house that night? Well, what had happened was uh, a guy had been shot in with his shot, a non-facial shooting. It was actually the wrong guy. They shot the wrong guy in the leg uh, with a Glock pistol. And um, I did some, I did some work to identify what, what the vehicle was that had been used. It was a stolen vehicle. And I, and I, I knew that they'd through through some uh, sneaky beaky means that they'd taken it to a scrapyard to uh, have it cubed up. So I went to a scrapyard and spoke to a scrapyard man and uh, I had a little chat with him about assisted offenders and potential prison sentence for them. <laughs> and uh, we he uncubed kindly uncubed the, uh, the the car that was used for me, and I was able to pull out uh, a key and a jumper and I got DNA from the key, which wow. led me to this guy. So I could put him in the offending vehicle uh, of the other shooting. And I went there and just happened to, fell lucky and, and got the guns. Wow. So Manhunt is Dale Cregan, is it? Yeah, so I worked on, I worked on the um, murder squad um, for a couple of years now. Got, got my mojo back with the firearms and worked on, a, worked on a couple of interesting murders, actually. One being a guy called Stephen Seddon, uh, who murdered his own mother and father. Was he mentally ill? No, he wasn't mentally ill. He was actually uh, Paul Massey's campaign manager uh, when he stood for Salford Mayor. Um, he was just a very evil man. Um, not that I'm sure Paul Massey would have approved of what he did, to be fair. But, uh, was, there, was there an incident that triggered that? No, yeah, so he was skinny and his mum and dad had a few bob and he wanted the blood. So he, uh, he, they were lovely, his mum and dad, lovely people. And um, he, he, um, he'd actually tried to kill them nine months before. How? He, 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 he got them in the car with him driving them shopping and drove all three of them into the canal. And he jumped out, he saved himself, got out, the, got out of the car while his mum and dad were drowning in the canal. And then um, because of people pressure around him, passed by, he's going, right, you're going to jump in for your mum and dad. He jumped in and sort of rescued his mum and dad. Ends up in the papers as a hero, lords himself as a hero for saving his mum and dad. Oh my God. And he's in the, he's in the mansion even there, he's going, I'm a hero, save my mum and dad from when we crashed into the canal. He drove them into the canal. So then about, I think it was about 12 months later, he, you know, he's in, he's in financial pay straits and he went to his mum and dad's home in Sale in Manchester with a shotgun and he killed, his, blew his mum away and then blew his dad, but tried to How set it up. you do that to your mum and dad? Yeah, and then he, what he tried to do was oh, leave, 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 leave the scene set up to make it look like dad had killed mum and dad killed himself. Yeah. And we, we managed to, uh, we worked on that murder for a number of months and we managed to convict him of, of murder. Oh, um, was it, you know, like with the Jerry Bama thing, they, in the beginning they said it was like one thing and then they changed their minds. Did, were the police suspicious from the get-go? Oh, story? yeah, we, we, yeah, we, 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 um, we started to obviously review the, 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 the job with the car in the, in the canal and we looked at him as an individual and, and some of the stuff that was around him and this stinks. And what also, was his excuse but, for going in the canal? 
Well, he's just trying to kill his mum and dad. He thought. Oh, no, but but what was his like? Because this you're, de- you're dealing with somebody who isn't. You know. What was his alibi excuse? I mean, I I, I didn't see yeah, something. Yeah, like yeah, that. Just, was yeah, in my yeah, eyes. Yeah, 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 Exactly, it was something of that nature. Yeah. So, oh, you know, oh, you know, it was a, it was a complete. And it shows it was accepted at the time because. Yeah, it was. It was. Happened. It was accepted, and he, he subsequently was charged. He charged as well mm. as the murders mm. with the attempted murders previously, yeah. um, but he. The, the, the way the scene was left where he killed mum and killed dad, uh, it was obvious when cops, detectives went in and, see, and crime scene investigators went in and went, this has been set up. It's, been, it's a staged scene, this. It couldn't possibly happen that way. Could you give an example of what, what made it obvious? Uh, so um, it, it was just the blood splatter uh, where it was, uh, the position of the firearm in dad, dad's wound. From where you know he, he put the, the gun in, in dad's hands, like uh, like in front of him, sat on the settee. Uh, but the wound that where dad had, been, dad had been shot wasn't consistent with being shot him shooting himself, that kind of stuff. Uh, so immediately it was apparent there's a third party at play here. Now who's had access to this? So you start to do your house house inquiries, you start to do stuff and like that. And um, what he'd done is he put his family in Blackpool, and he, he pretended he, he was he was on CCTV in Blackpool at this holiday camp. And he actually lived in Seal in the northeast, even though he's from Manchester originally. Uh, and he'd used a vehicle, and we, we uh, painstakingly managed to get um, do the run between Seal and Blackpool uh, to see how many was it possible in the time frame he's on CCTV for him to do this run, and it was. And then they started to look at cameras, and we just sort of picked any car up on AP, APR that had gone from Manchester Blackpool up to Seal, and there was only about six cars. And we had partial veggies for them. Uh, we, we didn't know the make. Uh, um, we eventually, uh, is it a bit, one was a BMW, sorry. And then we got him on CCTV at a cash machine in Seal the morning of the murders. And he parks the car and just the, the front end of this car is on CCTV. And sure enough, it's a blue BMW. The one that was used up to go up and down. And we match into the car that was able to travel up and down between Blackpool, the scene of the murder, and Seal. And that car was missing. And we had about... I think it was about two hours to go before we had to release him, and we found the car. Where was it? It was hidden in a brother in a, in a, in a, in a up in Seaham. It's a funny place. They, they've got terraced houses with these, uh, they all have garages at the back that are roll on roller shutter, and it had been left in a brother in law's uh, um, mm. uh, garage at the back behind roller shutters. Was he daft enough to take his phone with him? No, nope, left his phone. No, nope, phone was left. And the, and the vehicle wasn't registered to him or anything like that, it was just a random vehicle. Um, Thank God for CCTV, then. Eh? CCTV, AMPR, all these sort of tactics that you know, all these, all these uh, resources we have in mm. law enforcement, you know, really mm. came into play. And mm. you know, otherwise we'd have been releasing that man. Had he managed to claim the insurance money, or was that no, 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 no? Because we, we nicked him pretty, pretty quickly. It, it very quickly it was prime suspect. Uh, so yeah, he's away, he's away in and he still, he still plays his innocence to this day. He's, uh, Stephen said in his call, Google him. Um, he um, he still he still Stephen said he's innocent. I think there's only about three people in it. You know, I think everyone the evidence is overwhelming that he killed his own parents. Mm. What was the other big murder one before Cregan? Uh, so I worked on the Stepping Hill murders, which was the Victorino Chua, who was the, the nurse who was murdering people. Murdering nurse patients. who was murdering people. Murdering That's a man or a woman? Man. Uh, he was a Filipino uh, guy, uh, and he was. The, the, you know, he was convicted of the murders. There is a school of thought. He's not. He, he's innocent of it. Um, Just like a Harold Chipman. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. So what he was doing was, or what, what the offender, what he, what he was doing, subsequently he was convicted of it. Was poison was putting insulin in saline drips, injecting insulin into saline drips, and uh, basically killing old people. 
because if you introduce insulin into certain people, it puts them into hypoglycemic attack. What was his motive? Um, basically, he had a, the, the motive given in court was that he had a, a, a grievance against the NHS and, and management and stuff. So, um, for killing patient and was, you know, quite mentally unwell. Bloody hell! But yeah, he got he got life sentences as well. Did he? Mm. How long did the other guy get who, who killed his parents? Life. Well, okay. life thirty years minimum. I think thirty or forty years minimum. I think. So that means they get parole parole board at thirty, does it? The possibility. Possibly, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I think Seddon must be in his fifties now, so God knows if he'll see see any life again. So, you know, we've got a big American audience. They're probably not familiar with the Dale Cregan situation. <clears throat> Could you describe what happened, what the, what the crimes escalated to? Yeah, so Dale Cregan, you know, was a, it escalated from days when, when I sort of first met him as a young, as a young criminal um, and his crew into a sort of you know, a reasonable level supplier of drugs um, and, you know, aligned himself with criminal family locally in Manchester and was... was Quite feared, quite feared as an enforcer and, and known as a violent individual. Uh, and he was involved in a dispute between two crime families in Manchester. And it, it what was started over a pretty petty dispute in a pub, really. Uh, and he subsequently went on to shoot the father and son, who were, who were the sort of heads of this family, family organised crime group, which they were called the Short family, uh, Mark and David Short. And uh, Cregan killed first Mark Short, the son, in a pub in Drawston. And he basically arrived in a stolen vehicle, walked into the pub, shot shot Mark Short fatally, uh, shot three others uh, who lived. And then um, David, the, Mark's father, was in the pub, was in the toilet of the pub, you know, by, by pure chance at the time, and obviously come back to find his son dying on the floor. David himself has a, had a reputation as, you know, a seriously violent individual uh, and a gangster, if you like, a criminal. And um, so clearly the police are in a very dangerous situation now where you've got two sets of violent criminals with access to firearms, potentially now at war. So it's a really difficult situation for the police to manage. There's a real risk of public safety. You know, when people are indiscriminately shooting four people in pubs, it's, you know, one's murdered now. Um, really, really difficult situation. And... Keegan then went to Thailand with some of his associates who'd been involved in that shooting with him um, and got out of the country and went to Thailand, but come back and was arrested um, along with his, some of his, couple of his associates. Now, two of his associates who were in the vehicle but not, not the trigger pullers were charged with murder and remanded. Keegan was fatally let go on release of the investigation because it was deemed there was not, wasn't enough evidence against him. No, that's open to debate. You know, um, the Chief Constable of the Great Manchester at the time, Peter Fire, came out and said, we, we have no choice but to release him. You know, you could ask lots and lots of questions about that. Were we robust enough as the police? Was the evidence there? Was it not? Were, should the CPS have been pushed to, to charge or what? You know, uh, I don't know. I can't, I can't answer those questions because I didn't have sight of the evidence at that point. Uh, so then he goes on to, he obviously, Cregan feels as a threat to him from David Short, the father of Mark, who he's killed. Uh, which, you know, looking at it dispassionately, you know, David was, was known as a, as a violent man. So Cregan decides to be proactive and attends at David's house with another guy called Anthony Wilkinson. And they, um, they kill David in his house 
um, it's following me to the back garden, shoot, pump, pump and pull bullets and throw a grenade at him uh, just to finish the job. They then drive to another house, which is a uh, someone linked to, to, to Shorts, and throw a grenade at that house. So now you've got a situation where we've got multiple people shot, two murders, two grenades thrown, first time on British uh, mainland outside Northern Ireland that grenades have been used in anger. Um, you've got somebody there now who's got access to money, resources, uh, nothing left to lose really. He's got uh, access to firearms and he's got access to grenades. And how, how would you source grenades? Well, um, you know, it's like anything in the criminal world, isn't it, Sean? You know, if you if you've got the, if you make the contacts, you can find you can get anything, pretty much anything. There was CCTV of him throwing the uh, grenade, wasn't there? Yeah. Yeah, there was CCTV of him throwing the grenade at the house. Yeah. Kissing nonchalantly comes along and he shows yeah. his t-shirt and just and his mate laughing, boof, and just chuck it and you just hear the boof. And waltzes off. Yeah, and they waltz off, get in the van and waltz off, you know. Um, oh. So they then, get, they then go and lay low. Um, we think at that time they went over to Yorkshire. They were assisted by a criminal from, from Yorkshire to, to hide over there. Um, and they're on the run. But clearly we have to find this man. You know, it's an unfortunate, you know, for anyone out there, it's an unfortunate uh, uh, byproduct. If you go out and shoot people and kill them and, and throw grenades, the police are going to look for you. You know, you, there's nothing more certain in life. And, and they have to do. They have to look for you. You know, anyone who thinks that that isn't right and proper, you know, needs, needs to get a psychiatric assessment, you know. Um, the police have to come and look for you. Um, so that's what we did. But, you know, lots and lots has been written about it anyway. So I'm not giving anything away. You know, covert tactics were pretty much coming to nothing. He was disciplined. He was very disciplined on his phone. He had money and resources. So he wasn't somebody that was just living in the loft of the neighbour down the road. You know, he had, he had criminal, criminal associates and resources to move. And he did quite well at it. Um, and so I get dragged in, you know, cops were going out onto the street speaking to his criminal associates from both sides of the, of the criminal divide. And we're coming back with the tails between the legs, you know, and just get told to fuck off, basically. We, we won't tell you. We're not interested in telling you. We won't tell you even if we knew. And it takes a certain kind of, you know, forget the TV shows. It takes a certain kind of cop to go and communicate with these type of criminals you know, to build relationships with them. Uh, and, you know, I had a reputation as being one that could, along with some others. And so they, they pulled us in and, you know, the three of us were ex-military lads. And they said, look, with the covert tactics are not really going anywhere. We can't get near him. It's going to take some old-fashioned police work. You know, we're going to have to do this the old-fashioned way, I think. Um, at this time, Great Manchester Police are ramping up his profile. You know, they were, they were putting out posters, there were billboards at... It was being announced at football matches. There was a reward of 25, then 50 grand, which was never enough, you know, in a million years. Um, so they're, they're raising their profile, which for me at the time, I remember having an uneasy feeling about it. I thought, this is not the way to be going at this point. It really isn't the way to be going. I, I felt uneasy about the strategy. But I agreed to do the job. So three of us uh, got together, got the kit we needed, got the vehicle, and we set about his gangster pals. And some of them, we would kick the doors in with warrants and lock them up for whatever. Some of them we'd speak to. Some of them we even, you know, offered to recruit and pay. You know, it, it, we would, it was about just trying to get as much information as we can to find the guy and get him, get him in, into custody to protect, to protect people. Because you've now got somebody who's got nothing left to lose. 
it's going away forever. So, you know, it's, it's a really, really difficult, dangerous, sensitive situation. You know, the police were dealing with the family and uh, trying to manage the risk to the public. I think at the time there was a, we call it a threats to life matrix, and there was over 100 people on it about who could be harmed on both sides, this gang war. And I think it's the biggest ever gang threat to life matrix that's ever been run in the UK. So you, that gives you some of the idea of the complexity of the risk of what the you know, Great Manchester Police will carry. So, you know, I'm critical in my book about certain things that were done uh, within the manhunt for Dale Cregan. Um, but equally, I do recognise that it's a really difficult, complex situation, fast moving, and some difficult decisions had to be made. Very, very difficult decisions. Damned if you do and damned if you don't. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. So I was one of the few people that managed to make some relationships with key people and key associates and uh, people that knew him, who who, who may have information. So I'd been on all day, the night before the two young cops were killed. I'd been on all day and I was at home at night and I got a phone call from um, somebody who wanted to give me some information. And they told me that he was back, back in the area. So I came back into work that night and tried to keep a line of communication over to, just to make just to see if I could get any more information on his location. So we could get a firehouse team down there to arrest him. Um, and he, um, no more information came. So that morning I went up to a, a very, very close associates of his and put his door in um, with a drug warrant and asked him to tell me where he was. Uh, and he went, look, even if, I, even if I knew, I wouldn't tell you because I'm more scared of him than I am of you, which was fair comment, you know, fair comment. And it turned out, unfortunately, that house was 300 metres away from where he was. So, um, which you call it, call it lucky, call it unlucky, because to be quite frank, if we'd have gone through that door, it would probably be me dead, you know. Um, unfortunately, what happened next you know, he, he rang a job to the police in where he said um, the, the back window's just been put in by a burglar up at this address. And the two the two female cops, uh, Nicola and Fiona, were dispatched to that address thinking they're going to a routine burglary job. And unfortunately, he killed them both in cold blood, brutally murdered them both, um, again, utilising the firearm and grenades. He then... Um, I was I was informed by a boss that look t- two cops had been shot. You know, don't know the situation. There was absolute chaos and carnage, as you can imagine. The radio was going crazy and stuff. So we initially headed for places we thought he might head to see if we could cut him off at the pass. Uh, and then my boss rings me and says he's handed himself in at Hyde Police Station. Get there, get there, and deal with him forensically. We've got to get this home. Keep your head. This is we've got we've got to do this professionally and properly because you know. Yeah, it's, it's terrible what's going on, but we've got to think about getting this home in court. So uh, a, a really brave uniformed lad uh, jumped over the counter and arrested him. And he basically walks into the nick and says, um, he drops his gun at the scene and he's got the officer run out of ammunition. Turns up in this, this car he's taken. And the night, sorry, the night before, just going back, he kept, he kept a family hostage with children in the house. Um, I don't understand, why, why would you call a burglar and then kill cops? Why wouldn't he just try and like lay low? Well, his, excuse, his, his, his rationale was, it was this, you fucked with my family, so I fucked with yours. He, he wasn't happy about some of the tactics of, the, of his family, you know, 
That, that was his rationale. He fought with my family, I fought with yours. So, you know, I was then with a couple of colleagues, the first detectives at the scene of Hyde, uh, Hyde Police Station, and uh, we bagged his hands, carried out an emergency interview um, in the immediate aftermath of him killing the two cops. Uh, and then, yeah, you know, he, 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 he was carted away to the police station and um, subsequently charged with all those murders. And we'll never get out. We'll never get out of prison. It's a whole life sentence. Yeah. Yeah. And um, some might say, you know, he, he was already he knew he was going down for the other murders, the initial ones. So to take police officers out, in some people's minds, he's seen as a hero because they hate the police. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, that 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 that, that then people exist in the world, unfortunately, and uh, you know those those two those two cops had done were defenceless almost, you know. And for me, it's, it's it's a massive argument should the police in this country be armed or not armed, you know, um, routinely. Um, it's very hard to argue about it, argue against it, when you've been hands-on involved in an operation of that nature, and, and that happened. The very next day, I stayed on duty overnight again, and, and the very next day, um, the, one of his golfers had been fetching cocaine and uh, cigars and this nonsense to, to, to the house where he was holding the family hostage. I went through a door and arrested him, and then I also arrested the next day the guy who'd uh, ferried him over to Yorkshire. So I was heavily involved in that operation, and then um, I was involved in it for a number of Time, time. I actually was embedded into Manchester Prison after that to advise the prison on risk around the two organised crime groups in prison because the, the, the gang war which feared would carry on in, in, in Manchester Jail. And so I, I, I was sent there for a period of time just to advise around risk and manage that to the, to the governors there. What was the funeral like then for the women? Oh, well, it was a, I mean, it was a, it was a, a national spectacle, wasn't it? You know, press all over... Um, um, you know, the members of the public lined the streets of Deansgate, and I remember it well. And I remember, I remember going and just, you know, I stood back in casually dressed with a friend of mine, and I felt delirious to be honest with you. You know, I'd, I'd been hands-on, upfront involved in it all, and as many, you know, not just me, other cops who'd gone to the scene and stuff like that. And it, you know, it, it's it's affected many, many other police officers that that day. Um, you know, lots and lots of cops have been affected by it, and um, I will just mention, you know. Um, uh, Nicola Hughes, who, who was one of the cops that's, that died, um, her family have set up a foundation in her name um, who do some fantastic work around um, helping children whose parents have been murdered mm. or one of the other parents have been murdered. So they do, they do some really fantastic work and, um, you know, um, they're a great charity to give to, you know. Just, just that point you made about arguments for police officers to be armed these days. I don't think, though, those two police officers would, would would have saved them had they been armed that day. Because no, they, yeah. to their, in their mind, they were going to a burglar, uh, uh, criminal damage at well, the back of the house. Possibly, Gary. Who knows how they would uh, have reacted? Uh, the way he did it, though, the way he come out. Yeah, as fast yeah, as he it did. would have been very, very difficult. But at least they would have had a fighting chance potentially. Mm. Maybe. Well, to be fair, um, I think it was Fiona was carrying a taser, which is you know useless. Yeah, 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 gun yeah. And a grenade. Mm. And she actually managed to draw it. Did she? She did manage to draw the taser. Now, if that had been a firearm. Maybe mm. she could have got rounds down back. Mm -hmm. So, you know, listen, yeah. I know there's an argument for and against police being armed in the UK, and I know it goes wrong sometimes. You know, it does. Mm. And police get it wrong and make mistakes. But, um, you know, having been, having been hands-on in those operations and seeing the depth of colleagues, you know, my, my point of view is we are going to move that way. Mm. It's just escalated to the point where the criminals now have got the technology, the mm -hmm. weapons... Grenades, 
you can't compete against that unless you're armed. Society isn't Dixon and Doc Green anymore. And we yeah. can't we can't police like that. Yes, community policing should be at the heart of everything you do in the police, but you know, we've got to we've got to stop pretending that we live in this Dixon and Doc Green society anymore. And yeah, we do have firearms teams and tactical units that can deal with this stuff, but quite often they're pre planned operations, they're not mm. re responding to you know, come ons like that. And you know, my personal feeling is that I think because of society and the, the violence that we are now having it, we, we will move towards routinely armed police officers. Do you think responsible citizens should be allowed to have weapons to stop the burglars? Well, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, um, you know in, in Northern Ireland, you know, the IUC, you know, they were dealing with the terrorist threat from, you know, uh, loyalists and, and Catholic paramilitaries. Uh, I know over there that retired officers are often allowed to carry firearms in public, and I know that that has been the difference between atrocities and not, because they've been able to pull out weapons as citizens and mm. and, and, and stop things that are going on. When you look at things like, you know, um, uh, the Mumbai Mall and things like that, God forbid it ever happens here in Manchester and the Trafford Centre, I would actually feel more reassured if there was off-duty police officers or off-duty, you know, good vetted citizens walking around with a gun that could respond to, to that terrorist threat, it would make me feel better. If the criminals have got that level of weapons, then the responsible side of society has got to be able to defend itself. Yeah, I think we've got to be careful we don't end up in a situation like America, to be truthful. We've got to be careful of that. There's got to be lots and lots of safeguards in place. Mm. Um, but yeah, it will come off for people being able to defend their family and their self, for sure. I think the problem with America is it's just flooded with guns. Mm. So you can get like, Throwaway Saturday night throwaway for like hundred dollars, something like that. Yeah. I was speaking to someone the other day about the prices of guns. Like we could get a Glock legally, buy a Glock for like five hundred dollars, something like that. Yeah. But in this country, in the on the black market, what what would a Glock cost? Well, well, I mean, it fluctuates. I actually worked on an op an operation where, well, I worked on the on the. I recovered a Glock pistol uh, from the place in Manchester that was part of an importation. It was a, a, a crime group from. Yorkshire in, in, importing Glocks from America and they were breaking them down into, into grandfather clocks and we call it the Glocks in the Clocks <laughs> um, and um, they were importing them and also one of the other one of the other importations was Madonna's bodyguard a guy called Stephen Greeno who was an ex-marine and he'd been Madonna's but he was importing Glocks from America into the UK as well um, so I, I think it depends obviously if it's clean maybe up to five grand five grand maybe yeah so what was something like an Uzi then? Um, go for an MP. It depends on its history. If it's clean, if it's been used, then the, 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 you know the, 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 their price deteriorates, yeah. and it depends on the state of the weapon. But if you're talking a brand new Glock, maybe maybe three to five grand. It would depend on the area of the country. It would also depend on your relationship with the seller and the buyer. There's yeah. lots of things that can fluctuate in terms of firearm prices. Sounds like you're uh, interested in game one. <laughs> with, all these, with all these podcast wars and people threatening to show up in my house, I feel a lot safer if I had a bloody Glock under my pillow. <laughs> yeah, well, well, yeah, I mean, I would. I would at times, you know. Yeah. Um, it, 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 I think, you know, I, I can understand why people want to protect the home. Yeah, totally. Because you can't even have, legally, you can't even have a, a taser or, or mace in this country, can you? Can't have taser, can't have CS gas, no. Well, get some good doors of baseball back, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what right, about a samurai it? knife or a sword? Or well, don't take it outside the house, Sean. It's out on the wall for the moment. All right, so the next chapter then was war, but is that part of the Cregan story? No, that's... that's, that's uh, I, w I was drafted into the Paul Massey murder. 
Oh my goodness. Because I've published the Ma- one of the Massey audio books. Yeah. And we might be getting a, fa- a Massey family member um, coming on the podcast. Okay, great. Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, look, you know, um, I mean, it was a shock to me when Paul Massey was murdered. I could, really... you, could, you, could you tell the viewers who Paul Massey was? Yeah, no, no. Well, Paul Massey was, you know, a, a, a long time established, almost iconic figure in Manchester and Salford, really. Uh, you know, he, he, he had been a gangster. He had been a criminal and a gangster, an active criminal and a gangster, and was had a good reputation in the criminal world. It was very highly respected in, in the, the UK criminal fraternity, you know. And his name was was a big name, you know, uh, definitely. Wasn't he running for mayor at one point or something? He yeah, did. He, he did later in life run, run for mayor of Salford, yeah. Mm. And, and you know, look, I mean, Paul Massey was older than me, but I'd grown up hearing his name with all this mythical reputation he had, Paul Massey, you know, um, and. Yeah, you know, he, he had been a, a violent criminal in his time, without doubt. But equally, he, you know, he was somebody with a, with some intelligence and a, a, a brain on him as well, you know. And uh, I know a lot of people in Salford speak highly of him. You know, others may not. But, you know, maybe a divisive character. Um, you know, he, he certainly wasn't a fan of the police or anything like that. But, um, you know, I, I have to sort of say, you know, give, give me... Give me 100 Paul Masses over some of the kids that are running about today, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, um, looking at it objectively. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he was a very influential figure in sort of gangland, gangland England, gangland UK, even, you know, known all over from Glasgow to London. Um, but, um, yeah, he, and, he, you know, he reached an age where you would have, even the police believed he'd sort of stepped away from frontline hands on criminality. You know, he'd been there, done that, got the t shirt, uh, done a lot of time in prison. Uh, and um, he was shot dead on his doorstep at the age, I think he was 55. Do you know the circumstances of, of what led to that? Well, there'd been, been a gang war in Salford, um, and I don't know if you know, your viewers are, are aware of Salford, but it's a white working-class area of, of Greater Manchester. It's his own city. And it's, it's some real tough it's real tough areas, some real tough people from there. It used to be the docks back in the day. You know, some real hard bastards come from Salford. Some I had a girlfriend people. out of there back in when I was a raver, and I remember the Salford skinheads chasing me. She lived in the flats. Yeah, Salford skinheads chasing me back to my car. Yeah, and <sighs> you know, they're the really tight knit family family groups, family criminal groups, and they um, they became almost the, one, 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 they once described as the armed robbers par excellence of the UK, and they would take on massive armed robberies like you know. Um, uh, cashing, cashing transit robberies, banks, uh, cash depots, and they were they were fucking good at it. You know what I mean? They were fucking good at it. Uh, some of the best armed robbers in the UK. Uh, and then obviously they, that would plough into drugs and more organised criminality and protection rackets. And you know, you, Moss, the difference between them and Mossad, Salford and Mossad is they're, they're almost the epitome of the organised criminal. You know, they're almost like you could almost equate them to a bit like the the, the families in New York. You know, that, that's almost how they their mm. model. You know, mm. uh, was it divided like Gooch and Doddington? No, no, the, 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 you, you could literally most of the, the, the criminals and gangsters from, from Salford you could probably trace back to five families, five or six mm. families, couldn't you? Mm-hmm. You know, and they'd all be into, into um, mingled and yeah. uh, crossover between the families. And, and, and you're now going from grandfather to father to father to son, G- different generations of, of crim- criminals and gangsters mm. from Salford, mm. you know, and they're very, very hard to infiltrate. It's a very tight knit community. Uh, and again, you know, I like to give the caveat not everyone in Salford is a criminal, not everyone in Salford is, is a gangster. There's some very, very good, decent, tough, hard working. 
people. I mean, you're from Salford. I'm from Salford, yeah. I was just going to interject with that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Gary's from Salford, you know. Not from one of the five families. <laughs> oh. I mean, probably more than five families. But, but you know, they're, they're along those lines. It's all, almost mafia-esque in a way. Um, would you agree with that, mm, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, it's, uh, and it's they're true, very, 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 very... And their reputation in the criminal underworld... Uh, certainly, the UK is, is absolutely top draw. That's what members. made it that much harder to uh, infiltrate them because mm. of the setup. Because all the people I've interviewed have been in prison and they've, they've come across Massey in prison, say he was at the top of the respect in prison. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, because you know they, they pride themselves on being very staunch. Uh, you don't grass. You uh, you look after your own kind of thing, uh, and they're very difficult to infiltrate because unless you come recommended or you've been to school with them, they won't do business with you. He, he was a member of the gym I was at. He used to go in there when I was in. But, so did you chat with him? Yeah, but famously, he, he had a, a TV crew, I think it was Channel 4, falling around, and they had a, a soft-top car. Four of them sat in it. Massey's in the back, and they're driving around Manchester with a TV crew f- filming him. And he's pulling up at outside all the bars in, in Manchester, and people are seeing him, coming over, respect, Paul, slapping his hand. Eventually, they, and they've got bottles of Moe Chandon that they're drinking. And on, you can actually see it, because I've seen the footage... Once they finish the bottles, they're lobbing them in the road as they're driving along oh, with the film crew filming them. At the end of the day, they end up at uh, the Hacienda and they're, they're trying to get in there. Or not trying to get in, they were going to go in, but there's a, a, a minibus from Yorkshire and there's a lad on the bus who gets into an altercation with Massey who doesn't know Massey from Adam. So they have an altercation, Massey smashes the bottle into his groin, this lad, and he's got a bad... bad uh, wound to his leg, uh, and Massey clears off. Uh, the police arrive. Lad gets taken to hospital. Ne- nearly dies, basically. Uh, he's so well, in, so well in with the film crew, Massey. They even prevent the police getting all the footage that they've filmed. And when they do get all of it, it's been um, doctored so that they didn't have that because they were filming as this happened. And he clears off to Holland, and that's when they sent the team in over there. Locked him up and brought him back. And I think he got 14 years, I think he got. For that one? Yeah. Wow. But that's the mark of the man. He does it, clears off, and the, even the film crew protected him. Wow. Yeah. So, so you, end, you end up in Salford then? So, I, well, I went to the regional crime squad. So I, I originally, after the, the Cregan stuff, I, I, my mental health started to really deteriorate and I needed to get out of sort of GMP and... I took a job at the regional crime squad where I used to handle informants, <laughs> handle grasses, um, which was an interesting world. Uh, and then I, I started to work on the, when I was at the regional crime squad, worked on um, the Massey operation after he got murdered. Uh, I literally got phoned from the scene by a friend of mine who was the detective inspector and he knew that I ran informants. Um, Paul Massey's just been murdered. Uh, automatic weapon, get, get busy. I need as much information as you can get. So I started to work on it and uh, one name kept cropping up. So I did what I do and started to try and think a bit, ingenuity, a bit of ingenuity and put some covert tactics in place and I managed to um, create this, get this name, put it into the, to the intelligence system and it was a guy called Mark Fellows. And so uh, the guy at the time who was running the, running the operation, the, the senior officer in charge of it, um, the head of the murder squad, I briefed him on what I'd done and what I found, and he said, look, I need you dedicated to this operation. I need you to come back to, to GMP, which uh, went against the 
the grain from it because I felt I felt a bit disillusioned with it all. And like I say, my old mental health was struggling after after the Creek and stuff. And um, so I went back to GMP. You know, it's kind of reignited my spark to have a go at Salford, really. Um, and set about the operation. Went, we, 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 you know, put place covert tactics and we, we uh, got out on the street again. I started taking doors off in Salford and recovered kilos of coke and ammunition and stolen cars and really hampered the, the organised crime group's um, uh, ability to operate, really. And then the, the, the uh, eventually the guy I'd identified, Mark Fowles, was uh, convicted of the murder. But unfortunately, uh, what happened, it, the, the investigation into him really sort of hampered and slowed down. He was shot after policy. He got shot himself. Um, retaliation. Yeah, retaliation. So he was called to prison on a previous sentence, out of the way. Uh, and then he um, he gets released from prison. And Paul Massey had a, uh, a close associate from Liverpool, actually, called John Kinsella. He was quite a well-known criminal in Liverpool. Um, he's famous for the... Uh, Stephen Gerrard, the footballer. Stephen Gerrard, the footballer, was having issues with a local local bully, local hard man at some point when he played for Liverpool. And uh, Mr. Kinsella went and had a word and made them, made their problems go away. And that's why he became famous. He was in the national press for that. Uh, and, you know, I met, I met, I met with John Kinsella, and he's quite a, an interesting man, to be fair. Um, intelligent guy. Um, somewhat, I imagine someone, not someone you'd want to cross. And um, he... Uh, Mark Fellows gets out of jail and he obviously had the same thought. Uh, I, it's not somebody I'd want on my case, Mr. Kinsella, so he shot him dead. Uh, he, um, when he was out walking his dog. Oh, was... my goodness. This was in my hometown. So my best mate, Hammy, <coughs> well man's cousin, was sunbathing on Pexel and a helicopter goes over and he's like, what the hell's going on? He's trying to get a look at me or something. <laughs> so, but the, the guy was out of his dog, wasn't he? And was he with his bird? Yeah, he was with his, yeah. his missus, yeah. This was right by where my mate was sunbathing, this happened? Yeah, early, early morning, out with his dogs and uh, his missus and uh, yeah, uh, Mark Fellows, who'd killed Massey. But at this point, I hadn't been charged with the murder. Yeah. Uh, and he, just to sort of flip back a bit, you know, Mark, Mark Fellows is an incredibly calculating individual. He sat in wait for Massey in bushes. Did um, they have military training or something? No, no, no military training. Uh, just he, he was a career arm robber, you know, good, crim you know, good, good criminal. Not, not like some of the Salford boys in many ways because he wasn't as brash and brazen. He was very low key how he went about his business. But he'd been a good arm robber, you know. He'd done done some arm robberies and cash van stuff, and uh, he was shifting coke and whatnot. And uh, he went about his business low key really. And he uh, he hid in a bush, waiting for Massey to come home. Uh, walked across the main road with a uh, an Uzi style machine gun, dressed in a combat combats and combat fatigues and a fisherman's hat, and uh, fired eighteen rounds and um, four four hit Paul and you know unfortunately were fatal. Um, and his motive for that? Well, his motive essentially he, he will say was that you know Paul Massey had been a bully and stuff, but it was there's another school of thought it was a paid hit. Mm. Um, you know, but no one has ever been convicted of that. By a Salford family, allegedly. Yeah, so the, there was a Salford gang war. There was two two factions. There was the A team and and uh, the police christened the, the other one the anti A team. Uh, so Paul Massey was was aligned to the A team. When I say aligned, I'm not saying he was a member of the A team. What I'm saying is he was he was associated with them. He was friends with some of some of their members. 
Was this when the Noonans were active? Yeah, well, the Noonans. No, this is this is sort of about five years ago. Mm. Okay, five six years ago now. Um, so yeah, so um, he, so he murders Paul in his driveway. Uh, gets shot himself. I think about two weeks after. Uh, ends up being recalled to prison. Gets out of prison and decides that John Kinsella's got to go because he's, you know, he's a dangerous guy. And he's possibly going to get him. You know, if anyone's going to have the clout to get him done, it might be John Kinsella. Um, I believe that was his thinking behind it. Because Kinsella was a friend of Massey. Because Kinsella, Kinsella and Massey were close friends, yeah. He really carried his friends. coffin at the funeral, uh, Kinsella. Yeah, they'd been in prison together. They'd been in prison together and they, were, they really did have a close relationship. And um, so, yeah, he, he shot John Kinsella dead. And then, you know, I think the belief was he tried to shoot his missus as well. She got away. Just shows you, he, he, you know, he just didn't pass by chance that day, did he? When he shot him, because they were oh, no, no, on the pre-planned pre- hit. It all out. Oh, it pre- yeah. hit. Yeah, I think yeah, he was absolutely. on a mountain bike. Yeah, so, so, so the investigation into that Merseyside police obviously took took that investigation on, and they actually found the sort of key piece of evidence that convicted him later at court for the Massey murder. They, he was a keen runner, so um, they found his what you know his Garmin or his, his his Fitbit, whatever it was, whatever make it was, like running watch, you know, what attracted his thingy, and uh, they were able to t- download the watch. And uh, track it back to the field opposite Massey's home doing a recce. Yeah, there's a picture of him in a race with his number, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he's running, and you can see on the photograph this yeah. on his on his but wrist. Beggars, beggars belief why he never got rid of it. To be truthful, mm. you know, very very silly. And then uh, he he was uh, convicted for both murders, uh, along with his friend Boyle friend uh, Michael Boyle, who, who they, they turned on each other at trial. Well, well, Boyle turned on fellows and tried to blame fellows at the, at the, file, at the trial and subsequently ended up getting convicted of the, the second murder anyway. So, off so with, with uh, Kinsella's uh, wife or whoever she was, did the gun jam? Uh, no, I think, I'm not sure what happened. I, 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 think, I think there was a shot aimed at it and he missed. I think, I think the weapon he used was a Webley, one of these old Webley revolvers, so it may have jammed or whatever. But, uh, but she was a great witness after then, wasn't I she? I think she was a fantastic witness, yeah. I, I mean, I, I believe she was pregnant at the time as well. So, you know, I mean, you, you know, fucking really callous, you know, really callous. So has he lifed off? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think he's got a whole life sentence. I think, mm. I think he has a whole life sentence. It might, be, it might be 40 years, but it might be a whole life sentence, I think. Did you say he was recalled? That's how he... Yeah, it was initially uh, when it, after, for, for, when he got shot. After oh, he got back out. He got, he got, he got back out. Yeah. So how was he finally apprehended? Uh, well, after after the murder of Kinsella, he was he was arrested for that. And they, 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 he used to ride bikes everywhere, and they, they found the bike they used, and he tried to mark it up in a vehicle and stuff like that. So it was a bit of a painstaking investigation, but they they, they got him they got him home and got him got him. Come so it was an easy arrest. Well, I wasn't involved in that arrest. It was a Merseyside Merseyside police operation that. Um, and obviously they, they were linking in with GMP um, regarding that. But um, I, by that point, I'd moved on. I'd moved on. I'd moved over to West Yorkshire Police by then and finished my career in West Yorkshire Police. He was hiding in the churchyard opposite Massey's house. Yeah, he was, yeah. But, yeah. but there was witnesses who'd seen him there a couple of times. Yeah. So, again, he was going. Massey mustn't have showed up. He's cleared off again because he had a route to get back to his van that he put the, the mountain bike in. Yeah. So and that particular day... It was very... very Calculating pre-planned murder. Yeah, bloody hell. Um, so what happens in Yorkshire then? I moved over to Yorkshire. Uh, a, a former boss of mine from the regional crime squad had moved over there and was uh, in charge of an organised crime unit over there. And they'd been suffering with different uh, issues. Uh, a guy called Yasser Yakub had been shot dead by the police over there. He was a, believed to be a, suspected to be a local drug supplier, fairly fairly high level drug supplier. 
uh, had been shot in a vehicle on the M62, with uh, which had a um, the, the police shot him dead, and uh, he subsequently had a uh, firearm at his feet in the, in, in the vehicle. Um, so uh, there was tensions with the local community, Asian community there in particular, uh, and it was you know I, I was sent to Huddersfield, and it was uh, lots and lots of drugs lines operating, and a real disproportionate gun and gang problem for, for the size of the town. And so uh, I was fetched in, uh, asked to transfer over there by, by my old boss um, to get a grip of it, really, to, to come in and run the organised crime unit, giving me experience I'd had in Manchester and Salford and undercover and stuff like that. And, um, you know, I was quite experienced at dealing with organised crime by this point. So he fetched me in and uh, I ended up going over there and running the organised crime unit. And um, we ran a, we actually ran an undercover operation there, which I, this side was on the management side of, you know, so probably one of the, Probably one of the few level one undercover cops in the country who's actually gone on to be a deputy SIO of, a, of an undercover operation and a managing undercover operation. Um, I don't think there's many about, Gary. What do you think? Only uh, who set up um, Amiga. Yeah. He, H. He, yeah. 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 So, yeah, probably, probably one of the few that, that I can think of that actually went on to, to from being an operative to actually managing an undercover operation. So, um, that was really successful in the end. I had a lot of false starts and uh, had a number of issues over in West Yorkshire that I detail in deep cover. But, um, yeah, my old boss from the region went back to GMP on another promotion. So my top cover just dissipated over there. I had no top cover. And, you know, you need top cover in the police from bosses to, to run things how you want to run things and stuff. You know, it's like any industry, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I detail more in the book about the, the undercover operation. It was basically, a, a, we had a, a level two operation where uh, an undercover got into all the drug lines, different drug lines selling shot and crack and heroin over there. Um, and then we, we lifted loads of people and whatnot. But the, I suppose the story of West Yorkshire really is, <clears throat> this is my, my mental health had been deteriorating massively. Uh, and this is where it really started to decline. Um, I, I started to... My sleep was all over. Um, my uh, any any noise, even just talking at a normal level, was like a train going through my head. Uh, I started to get tinnitus in my ear, you know, ringing in my ear, and my concentration was non-existent. I couldn't even I couldn't even watch a television program. Um, yet I just threw myself more and more into work. I was starting to have conflicts at work with people, um, other other managers and stuff like that, other detective sergeants, other detective inspectors. And um, I just didn't seem to be able to operate on the same level. I've been operating on all them years. Um, it's like all my skills had left me. And then I remember one morning about to go through, you know, a, a, a drug dealer's door. And this was a part of the job that I used to thrive on me. You know, I didn't, I didn't have any fear of going through anyone's door. It just didn't bother me. You know, I, I, I was, you know, I'd been in the military. I'd, I was a robust lad. Uh, and, you know, no matter what the threat, I always felt I'd, I'd have the skills to deal with it. You know, whatever whatever come my way, I just felt I would. And I remember almost throwing up outside of someone's house one morning. Um, and I, I'm in charge of the team. You know, I've got to be, be seen to be, you know, the, 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 the dominating force, the leader. You know, and I, I remember going to go behind this, behind a skip and, and, and throw up. Uh, just the anxiety had gripped me. I just didn't want to be there. I just I didn't want, did not want to be doing it. The, 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 that, that, that desire and I, I had, had left me. What, what thoughts did you have when that happened? What, what was going on in your head then when, when you realised that had happened? Do you know what, Gary? 
I knew, I knew, I think I knew at this point I was, I was having a bit of a breakdown. I think I knew at this point I was having a bit of a breakdown. Um, my whole life had gone to shit. Me, my partner had left me. Um, and I started to become paranoid and, and quite, quite, I, I suffered with psychosis. Um, and what one particular incident one day, I'm sat at home and there's two young lads, two scally looking young lads parked in a car on, on my street near my house. And uh, the, the sort of looking at the eye lines in my house and they're looking at my house and I'm thinking, what the fuck are these two staring in my house for? And I'm slowly winding myself up and they, uh, I'm watching them from like the blinds in the top, top bedroom where I lived at the time. And um, I think, you know, why the fuck are these two staring at my house? My wife, my, my wife's left me by this point, you know, and my paranoia is ramping up, my anxiety is fueled by the noise, the noises in my head, the tinnitus I had. Um, it all started to really weigh on me. And I stood and watched for half an hour, and I thought, they're here to fucking kill me, they're here to do something to me. It's someone I've had a running with, or through, through, the, through the job, or whatever, undercover, or fucking... Uh, some criminals have sent someone to, to, to shoot me or whatever. And I thought, fuck it. And I just, uh, you know, at the time, at the time, you know, I was 16 and a half stone. I just fucking ran out. You fucking here for me, are you? Fucking here for me, well, fucking get out of the fucking pair of you. Tried to rip the door open. Fucking Dave fucking shit herself. Um, trying to slam the, 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 the doors locked and all that. Going fucking screaming, what are you doing? You're, you're, I'm, I'm like a madman in the street. Uh, one of my neighbours comes out and fucking, he, he was an older bloke, to be honest, which was probably a good thing because I think it would have been someone my age, I might have stuck one on him. I was, I was that far gone. And he was an older bloke and he, and he hugged me. And he's like, stop, stop, Shay, what are you doing? Stop. And he just put his arms around me, like, like in a bear hug. And he's like, stop, what are you doing, son? What are you doing? And um, at that point, he, 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 he spoke to some of my family and said, he's unwell. He's unwell, this lad. You know, he's really unwell. You need to get him help. <clears throat> it turned out, they were charity collectors, you know, knock on the doors. Mm. You know, they were having a break, having a dinner. You've been firing on all cylinders for too long. It's too long, up. too long, yeah. And um, so I, I then ended up, um, couldn't sleep, couldn't sleep. Family members and friends were saying, look, you need to, you need to get some help. And I'm, I'm going, fucking me, help. I don't need fucking help off nobody. You know, typical macho fucking bloke, ex-army, fucking undercover cop, me, I don't need help. Fucking boxing in the gym, all that shit, you know, I've had to go at it all. You know, I'm exactly the type of bloke who doesn't need fucking help in my head, you know. Um, but I couldn't be more wrong. I couldn't be more wrong. Um, my mum begged me to go to the doctors. So I did. I agreed to go to the doctors, not because I thought I was insane, not because I thought I was ill, not because I thought I was mad, because I just wanted to sleep. Because in my head, if I could sleep, I'd not slept for weeks. If I could get 12 weeks, if I could get 12 hours sleep, I'd be all right. I could start smashing it. I could get back in the job and, and look for the next big challenge. Um, and so I went to the doctors and um, I sat down and I remember, I remember saying to her, I just need some fucking sleeping tablets. As blunt as that, I need some fucking sleeping tablets. And she says to me, oh, it just doesn't work like that, Shay. And, you know, I'd never been to the doctors. I wasn't somebody that I'd, I'd never even had a call for years, you know what I mean? I was a fit lad. Um, and she said, Look, I don't want to just see sleeping tablets on. What, what's wrong? And I said, just give me the fucking sleeping tablets, will you? Will you? Fucking give them me. Um, I just need to sleep 12 hours, that's all I need. And she just fucking turned the chair to me and went, you're, you're unwell, Shay. We need, we, need, we need to help you. And 
I don't know why, I just broke down and told her, like, everything. And I don't even think she believed me at first. You start telling people you've been an undercover cop and a, and a soldier and the story I've told today, you know, you think, people think you're talking shite and um, bullshitting. And um, she, she, I just went, you don't even believe me, do you? And she went, I, I do, I do believe you. And she was amazing. She was absolutely amazing. And it, it, she said, look, I was sent to the mental health unit for an assessment. And she just said, look, you, you, you can't go and work as a police officer anymore. You can't go in. You, you, you're seriously unwell. You're a danger to yourself. You're a danger to the public. Which was really hard, hard thing for me to face up to, to be honest with you, because I'd been, spent my life being a protector. I was the one who you sent to protect people, to present to protect the public, you know? Now I was the danger to it and danger to myself. Um, and everything had gone, my family had gone, my, my, my house ended up going. Um, I had real issues with the police. I started the process to get medically discharged um, and they, they pulled some pretty underhanded strokes, to be quite frank, um, which I, I won't go into because I'm a one, I find it quite annoying and painful, but uh, I don't think it's any, any use now. But um, they, they, they were really, really quite callous with me, the police. Um, but I eventually was medically discharged um, and ended up under psychiatric treatment for a long time uh, on psychiatric drugs, which I still take today, just to, just to sort of keep me on an even keel and, you know, make, make, the, make the day pass as well, as well as it can and just stop me from having racing thoughts and, and you know, and I was diagnosed with complex PTSD. So I, was I went to the police psychiatrist and um, they sent me there to an independent psychiatrist to get an assessment. It was, I believe she was meant to blow me out of the water and say I was making it all up and I was just, you know, lying to try and get out of the job, which was nothing, couldn't be more further than the truth. And um, she, she said, she wrote a 17 page report saying, it's, uh, he's, he's got complex PTSD as a result of his, the operational work he's done. I'm surprised. Um, so I was retired out of the place, medically discharged out of the place, and so it took a long time just to get myself straight. Uh, I had to rebuild my entire life, uh, my personal life, everything. What year did you get out? Uh, just two years ago. Just two years ago? Two years ago, yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, uh, two years ago in April. Um, so yeah, I'd lost everything. I'd lost uh, my career, i lost my relationship, i lost my home, i lost everything. Um, for being unwell, which is now what drives me to try and write the story. Really, you know, um, I started to make um, I started to make notes about stuff I've been involved in, and um, I met Scott Hesketh, you know, uh, who, who was a, an established journalist, and he helped me put some structure around it. Uh, and to be fair, it was Scott that sort of said, "This is an unbelievable fucking story, really," you know, and. Would you, would you be interested in writing a book and with me and we'll take it to a publisher and I think I'll get a publisher interested. But, you know, from outside that world looking in, you don't think it's possible, do you? You know, I'm just a simple lad from a Manchester council state. I don't, I don't expect, uh, I never expected I'd write a book, you know. Um, and sure enough, we went to Ebury and Penguin and, and they gave me a deal um, to write the book. But I'm sure, you'll, I'm sure you'll agree, Sean, there's no money in books. People think if you're an author, you're minted. <laughs> there's no money think in you're books. Jeffrey Archer or J.K. Rowling. Yeah. But the truth is, it's like a pyramid. There's a fraction of authors at the top, like in any profession, that make all the money. And according to the Society of Authors, the average author income 
It's one of the lowest incomes of all professions. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's absolutely no money in books. But it wasn't about that. It was about, one, telling the story, and two, I never want any police officers to have to go through the shit I went through. Um, I want the police, the police forces in this country to start recognising the, the, the trauma that cops have to deal with day in, day out. There's good cops, there's bad cops, we know that. You know, and I'm all for bad apples being ousted, jailed in need be. I've no problem with that. But there's good cops in this country who are failed by the system. They're failed by their own organisations and they don't feel they can put their hand up like me and say, I'm, I'm unwell, I need help because of the, the, the stigma and the demonisation that comes with mental health. And that's why I wrote that book uh, because I hope no one ever has to go through what I did. You know what? Sorry for the thing is, he shouldn't be saying that today had GMP got their act together after what uh, happened to me. Because they said the same to me. You know, it'll never happen to anybody else. And there he is, them years later, and the self-same things happened to him. It's probably happened to a lot more. It's going to happen again. It's probably prevalent. People, we don't even hear about mm. it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate. I mean, you know, me, me and Gary, you know, not, not a lot of cops will operate as a level one, you see. And, you know, we did, we were at the absolute sort of sharp end of that work. And, it, it, it stays with you forever, doesn't it, Gary? Mm. You know, it stays with you forever. Mm. You know, there's not a day goes by I don't I don't think about it. Uh, but not just that. It's not just the, the special operations work that goes on. There's cops that put a uniform on every day and have to, don't know what they're going to go through. Mm. And they, they can deal with children being abused or a violent maniac with a gun or a knife. And, you know, we all know there's good and bad, the bad cops, you know, but you need the police. As a society, you need the police. It's as simple as that. And, you know, Cambridge study has said that one in five police officers is suffering with PTSD. Now, that is not good for the public. If the police are unwell, it is not good for society. And, you know, the posters are on the wall in the police stations about mental health and well-being, but there's no substance to them in many cases. Uh, and chief police officers and senior police officers need to get their act together and start prioritising this. Police officer mental health and um, accepting that the shit they have to deal with is serious and damaging. Not just for them, but their families and their children, you know. Um, so that's what that's what my drive was to write this book. Um, after I'm, the, having been through all that and described it today, would you, if you had the chance, do it again? I would, because that's me, in it? Mm. But I, I would like to think that I would manage better, and I'd like to think they'd be learning from things that you've been through, things that I've been through. Unfortunately, they, they, they roll out that phrase, we'll learn from this mm. time and time again, yet I don't often think they do. I think it's just a, it's just a, a, a words uh, with no sincerity. Yeah. Um, so this is my little way, my little bit of, of putting it on the public record uh, to show that, you know, there's more needs to be done mm. for mental health um, of, of police officers. And I know it's an unpopular subject with some people, you know, people think, you know, the police are infallible and they, they, they you know, the police are just human beings like anybody else. Yeah. They, they've got kids, they've got wives, they've got husbands, they've got families. Yeah. They have to see and do some of the most, you know, difficult and traumatic things. Police officers will see things that most people don't see in a lifetime. Mm. Two, three, four, five times, sometimes twice a week, mm. you know. And so it's just... It, it needs addressing that, you know, um, it needs a, it's a situation that needs to be dealt with, and I don't feel that enough is being done. Mm. It certainly raises the issues, doesn't it, the book? Yeah, and Fantastic. I think we've um, interviewed about 10 to 20 
police on this channel now. And other police who've messaged me have said, we've watched your interview with such and such a person. I'm thinking about telling my story. It's like there's a, there's a reluctance and there's pressure from if they've got like, um, if they know someone's still in the forces or they've got a family in the forces, things like that. Mm. Um, it, it can be frowned upon, can't it? That, they've, that someone's done that and come on and spoke about. Well, yeah. It's, it's insular. Absolutely. Um, you know, my book went to the police before it was published, you know, because my, my intention wasn't to um, cause any risk or harm to any member of the public or, or even any criminal or, or any uh, colleague of mine from the past. You know, it wasn't to do that. We've changed names purposely. We've changed certain details that we had to do to protect people illegally because it wasn't my intention to harm or, or disrespect anybody. Um, but we felt it was an important story to be told. Um, and the, the police don't like it, you know. I mean, I've offered to go back to the police and speak about mental health to new recruits and stuff, or, or even undercover cops or anyone. Uh, and unfortunately, because I put my head above the parapet and wrote a book, they see you as an enemy of policing. And they couldn't be more wrong. They couldn't be more wrong. And I'm not saying that's all cops. I'm hoping there is some forward-thinking senior police out there who see merit in it. And I'm more than willing to come down and volunteer my time to come and speak to new recruits or any cops. You'd be matter. the best person in the world to do that. Mm. Hey, tell the police, John. You know, they, they, they just don't seem to get it. But, um, you know, it's... Um, and I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to do it because I, I'm passionate about it. And, and I never want anyone to have to suffer what I suffered, you know. Um, but a, the police as an organisation needs to get their acting gear with a lot, a lot of things, I'm afraid, in this country. How did you and Gary first meet? Me and Gary met because uh, Gary was in Amiga years before I was. You know, Gary was one of the real forerunners of, forefounders of Amiga, really, you know, and sort of modern-day undercover work. And I'd heard of Gary, you know, I'd heard of Gary's reputation long before I ever met him. And we had a mutual friend, um, who, who I won't name, who was also a member of Amiga. He spanned sort of Gary's time and mm. spanned my time. Uh, and um, when I wrote the book, um, obviously I'd read Gary's book and I thought I'd really love to speak to Gary because uh, his story... It's almost worth resonated with mine. You know, the treatment he had off management and the and the, the 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 poor way in which he was dealt with afterwards, and then the the mental health struggle. It really resonated with me, mm. and, and um, so I was lucky enough that I was able to you know uh, get a meet going with Gary, and we sat there, and even the, probably even more parallels with our story. Yeah, yeah. You know, as we, when we speak, yeah. And so I've got a lot of um, affinity with Gary because for what he's been through, and mm. I feel Gary has with me mm, because yeah. he, he's walked in my shoes and I've walked in Gary's shoes. Yeah. And it's it's so disappointing for for both of us that 20 years before I did that work, Gary was told this won't happen again, and yeah. it did. Yeah, it's shocking. And when I met met with uh, Jay and and I read the book, I couldn't believe it. You know how similar it was, but I couldn't believe what the the, the gap in between us was in, in having done it, and yet it's still, still the same. Did you bump head with bump heads with Freemason like cops? Do you know what I, I, I probably did, but I, I, I've never I can't recall. I, I, I if I look back at some of the management treatment I had, I imagine if we looked into those individuals, <laughs> they probably are connected to the Freemasons. <laughs> but but it wasn't something in my mind at that time. It wasn't something I was aware of. Um, but no, looking back now, I know what Gary's story. I didn't wonder, you know, was there a bit of Freemasonry, you know, uh, involvement somewhere? But it's certainly not. It's an old boys. It's, it's you know, it's, the, it's a it's a boys club. The police, for sure. You know, um, they, 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 if you're in the clique and in, 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 in the specialist units, if they want you out, you're gone. You know, uh, and you are you are sent to Coventry effectively. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, I totally agree with Gary's point. You should not be a member of the Freemasons and be a police officer. It's totally 
uh, at odds with your, your can I, Can I mention about the, the live debate with Johnny Royal? Yes, and, please and do. And his advice yes. to me at yeah. the end of that hour yeah. was, we don't want people like that uh, in, the, in uh, the Masons. So write to, or get in touch with the Grand Lodge of England and uh, discover uh, where those individuals are, what, what lodge they're in, and, and put a complaint in. So I've done that now, and I've sent two uh, emails to the Grand Lodge of England. Had no response whatsoever, mm. not even acknowledgement. So, <laughs> you know, why haven't I had it? That's the question I'm posing. Uh, well, if they do respond, we'd, I think we'd like to get you back on to them. Um, to further that, because there's a lot of interest in that, isn't mm-hmm. there? Yeah, yeah. So, Shay, we've been on a three-hour, 20-minute journey. I think you've matched or exceeded <laughs> the length of Gary's. Can I just say, um, uh, the last point from me, uh, I, I joined Instagram because the publisher asked me to do it, ShayDollarUK, Shay and um, I've never done social media because of the store, and I don't put my face out there or anything like that. But I've, I've uh, and you know, and I've, and I have vetted the messages that come into me uh, by by a friend of mine, and um, I have had some amazing messages of support from uh, people, not just former cops, but uh, victims of crime, victims of sexual abuse, uh, who have read the book, and uh, it's really sort of touched a nerve with them. And some it said it's 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 given me some confidence. There is some good cops out there. Um, mm. and some cops have come to me talking about thank, thank you for writing this book writing this story highlighting the shit we have to deal with and, and, the, the, and, and themselves going through um, mental health issues um, and that for me has made this book worth writing mm. so any criticism I might get of the police pales into significance mm. from, the, from the feedback I've had of people that have been touched by it and uh, it's, um, it's resonated with them yeah, and all of the links will be in the description box below this video for Shay and Gary. And if you are a cop out there and you're thinking about coming on an ex-cop, reach out, you know, send us an email. Um, you can get my email through my contact on my website. And, you know, on this channel, we 100% believe we do need, there has to be a police force. There's a lot of bad politics coming from the top. There's corruption. They're the kind of things we are exposing, but... Every police person we've interviewed, they've joined to arrest the bad guys and to go after the, you know, the predators, the, the, the killers, the rapists and all this kind of stuff. And sometimes that mission gets derailed because of, of orders from the top and um, the, those complications that arise. Like if, if you've listened to Gary's podcast, which I urge you to do so, you can you get into the, understand the politics, uh, the difficulty of navigating the system when it's, it's so political like that. But yeah, um, we support the police and we'd love to get more police on and, and their viewpoints are absolutely invaluable, I think. So if you want to get a deep cover, I, I recommend the audiobook. It's fantastic. Like I said in the beginning, very, very highly reviewed on Amazon. Links will be down there. If you want to reach out to Shay, contact him on his Instagram. And uh, have you? I think your podcast went up a few months ago, almost 200,000 views now. Have you had people mm-hmm. reaching out to you? Uh, I'm not on Instagram or anything. Oh, right? there's no so, way for uh, them to reach no, out. No, no, no. But, You're not uh, getting stalkers or anything? <laughs> <then going>. <laughs> <laughs> no. But, uh, you know, again, I appreciate what you've done in relation yeah. to that because uh, that's got that message out, you know, and, and, and you do, uh, no doubt Shay will be saying the same now. It's great just to come and talk about it. Well, it? yeah, it is. And again, Sean, thank you. And it's refreshing because, you know, as someone who's 
been on the other side of the fence to us, um, been in jail and, and done what you've done and had the experiences you've had. You know, to actually give us as, as cop, ex-cops an audience to, to do that, I think that yeah. shows yeah, your, yeah, yeah. Your, uh, your attitude towards yeah, yeah. life is, is yeah. great. You know, so thank you. Yeah. I think most normal human beings, you know, if something's going to go bad, if their life's under threat, where are they going to turn to? Mm. They'll turn to the police, aren't they? Well, I always say that. I always say, you know, I, I've, I spoke to people who go, I hate the police, this, that, the other. What happens when your children go missing? Are you going to ring? Exactly. You're not going to ring the police. Government policy and the war on drugs has, has caused um, society to be divided over the police, and I think that's, that's something that Neil Woods is campaigning for and, and needs to be addressed. Because if you go back and look at the definition of police and, and law, there were people who took people out of society who harmed other people, murder, robbery, rape, you know, the, 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 the true villains. So it's, it's great that more police you know, feel um, secure enough to come on and tell their stories and, and reveal the flaws in the system that society wants to be corrected and get the police back to doing what the public mostly want them to be doing. Mm-hmm. But we're being told there's not enough resources to go after predators and things like that. And it, it, I can understand the, the frustration in the, with the public. Drug law needs reform, for yeah. sure. I mean, it's yeah. a, it, it absolutely needs reform. Um, but we've got to make sure that there's other opportunities for those people in that drug trade mm. to, to not move into other areas of criminality. Yeah. You know, we've got to, we've got to put those, those job opportunities and, and educational opportunities in place, as well as reform the law. Definitely, but what we're doing is copying the American mass incarceration model, which makes money for the private prisons and lots of other entities, instead of the Scandinavians who do give them job skills and show them how to be normal human beings and have the lowest crime and reoffending in the world. Listen, it's not worked. We need to we need to be forward thinking about it, don't we? And yeah, uh, I yeah. totally agree with that. Yeah. So please let us know in the comments what you thought about all this. Don't forget. If you've not checked out Shay's book or Gary's books, all the links will be down in the description. And um, I won't reach over and shake Shay's hand because you're not allowed to see him, but I'll just give, give Gary a quick hand. Thanks, <laughs> Gary, mate. Cheers, yeah. Take care out there. Thanks for watching. Cheers.